0: This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture
1: world. Hello, one and all, to episode 20 of Through the Years, the podcast where, where two people, sometimes three, review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. And why I had to add that caveat is... I just realized that my two-person entrance wouldn't work because we have a returning guest. Because in addition to me, Trevor Dame, and him, Matt Feuerstein, we are having not only the return of our first guest, but he becomes our first ever repeat guest because we are returning to Boston, so we are returning to Joe Gagney. So ladies and gentlemen, the host of Five Star Match Game, the host of Joe vs. the World, the host of Joe Gagney's Funtime Pro Wrestling Arcade, and those can be seen on VoicesOfWrestling.com, um, TheCubsFan.com, and YouTube.com, respectively. It's Joe Gagney.
0: Thanks, guys. Do, do I have to read the statement about the deep state from Sinclair Broadcasting? I don't, I don't agree with any of this. Yeah, um, I, I feel like I'm glad that you brought that
2: up. <laughs> um, I should introduce myself as well. I'm some guy, and I. Steen,
1: the creator of this show. Come on. Oh please,
2: oh please. List them
1: and learn. Host and creator.
2: Yeah, I feel weird about the whole ROH thing. It's like I, uh, you know, uh, because it's this show. You know, can't help but promote ROH in some way. And uh, Sinclair owns it, and Sinclair is really bad. But that doesn't mean the wrestlers and ROHs are bad. So what are we supposed to do? are we supposed to boycott uh, it? What what should happen? I don't I don't know.
1: It, it's tough because I am not a fan of not trying to do anything and just whitewashing everything. But at the same time I realize that not only am I not going to agree with the owner the views of the ownership of everything I consume, but like I realize that, you know, Sinclair's doing some I'll say what I find to be ethically sketchy things, but, like, it's tough where to draw the line, because it's not like, um, Vince McMahon is a great person, or... (laughs) Or uh, qu- quite a lot of few people in wrestling, or you know, I bet you some of the people that own Nabisco and make Oreos aren't the greatest people. So it, it's a, it, it's harder to ignore when it, the stories pop up right in your face. I would say.
2: Yeah, yeah, the Sinclair stuff is like a little bit on a on a kind of different level as far as insidiousness uh, than a lot of the other stuff we've seen in terms of like actual damage they're doing right now. But again. Does does a boycott punish them with boycott of ROH, or does it just punish the people involved in ROH? I don't know.
1: But I, I mean I, I, oh, sorry. Sorry. I
0: say I prefer my Ring of Honor non-problematic and owned by Rob Feinstein. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's the
1: other um, that's <laughs> the other frosted tip elephant in the room with the Rob Feinstein and his history, which we will have to get to a ways down very carefully
2: yes it will it will come up it will be unavoidable <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> yeah. might have to mention it yeah
2: yeah um, Yeah. at least at least we could argue that in 2003 most of us didn't know that about yeah. RF whereas now um, you know we can't really plead ignorance on Sinclair but I, I, you know, it's, I, I have not come to a full decision on how I feel about the situation, but I felt like since, that, since the Sinclair really became a big story on the internet, in the, since our last episode came out, I feel like this was a good time to talk about it. And since, since you brought it up, I figured I would uh, throw that out there. Fun way to start the show, guys. No problem. <laughs> That's what I'm here for.
1: I'll, I'll say this, the good thing about this is obviously this is a free podcast, not affiliated with Ring of Honor in any way, and we're covering shows that, as far as I understand, I don't think they've really put them even on their streaming service, and from what I've heard, their streaming service might not be a safe buy even at this point, because, <laughs> I mean, they're ha- that's the funny thing, they're owned by Sinclair... But yet they don't have they don't seem to give any of the resources. It's it's like the forgotten about little arm that's stuck away from everything else.
2: It's like early WCW, but like to the extreme.
1: Colt Cabana was not forced to read a statement about fake news, like. <laughs> it, 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 so they're almost they're almost exempt. They're just forgotten about. They're the cheap programming that you know fills all their affiliates at eleven and twelve o'clock at night. So. Yeah.
2: Well, is if if one day we see Boris Efstein doing um, doing backstage interviews at ROH, we'll know that Sinclair is fully encroached.
1: <laughs> now, entertainment that is produced by people who are of good, unquestionable moral character would be the fine podcasts at the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only <laughs> Podcast Network.
0: Stretch, um, stretching a little there, but yeah,
1: we'll go with it. <laughs> hey, they're my bosses. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But actually, I got two new debuting shows to plug this week, Uh, both that just came to my attention within the last few days, so great timing, actually. Um, Who Booked This is a new podcast on the network hosted by J.R. Goldberg and Stephen Graham, and every episode is just going to be them talking about either a weird match or a horrible match. I uh, listened to their debut episode. It's only like 48 minutes while I was um, shopping today. And they just they just devoted a whole episode to the first ever Punjabi prison match between Undertaker and the Big Show. Uh, a lot of laughs were had. it was It was a very enjoyable way to spend, like, mostly driving and buying horrible headphones i'll have to return but so that was fun and then the other podcast i would like to plug that's a new addition to the place to be network is wrestling war zone the monday night wars which is a new show by jt rosero and someone we know matt chad campbell who brought us to the network
2: My favorite guy cover,
1: yeah they're going to be covering uh, raw and nitro each and every week from the beginning of <laughs> that when they start going head to head
2: yeah, and I am excited something. I am excited for this podcast, I have to admit.
1: Yeah, for everyone that is a fan of the old you know, where the big boys play, Chad Campbell is back into the chronologically retelling WCW pass business just in a just in a new format. So it's great to have him back there. So yeah, that's um that that's the plug section of the show. And I should let you and both
2: know now. I uh, for dinner tonight I had a burrito. It had lettuce in it. I'm not sure that it was romaine lettuce, but <laughs> if I die during the show, blame the lettuce.
1: <laughs> yeah, for uh, those who will be listening to this in the uh, post apocalyptic future of 2024, um, lettuce was a green vegetable we used to have that occasionally got tainted with E. Coli, and so that's what Matt's talking about. Mm. But... It's how I died. (laughs) um, Normally, at this point in the show, we would talk about the news that happened between shows. The two major news things that, like, behind-the-scenes things that happened uh, concerning this event really happened during the event, so we will um, get to them later. But there is one piece of housekeeping I think I I would like to talk about, which is, Matt, last episode we talked about Iceberg's second and final match in Ring of Honor. Speaking of lettuce... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um and we talked about that and you know it was it was just i we i think we just both agreed it was just a simple squash but it was panned at the time as this uh like you know the worst match in ring of honor history and the crowd did crap on it and i and i at least on my ha- half be half i assumed that's why he never showed up again but I'm, unfortunately, I didn't find this in my research before the last episode, but I just happened upon this a few days ago. Gabe Sapolsky actually tells his plans for Iceberg, of all people, in an old MySpace blog. So I will just quote Gabe here.
2: Wait, wait, wait. Just before back. you before you quote this, did you, you literally just find this on, like, the Wayback Machine? I, I was searching for
1: something... I think I was searching, searching for a story about, like, Steve Carino or something, which we'll get to later. And for some reason, like... Uh, uh, The old Gabe MySpace blog, like someone had quoted a post in a message board, and I just... There was this, uh, of all things, a blurb of Gabe talking about Iceberg, like, years and years after the fact. You are
2: an amazing researcher, I have
1: to say. (laughs) This was just happenstance, but um, this is Gabe talking about Iceberg. Gabe writes on Iceberg, I was firmly committed to giving Iceberg a monster push, similar to the way Abyss was pushed, but Iceberg was going to be more violent. We just couldn't reach a financial number to make it work for either party. I knew it would be a hard sell on the ROH crowd back then and t- took it would take some time and effort to get over, but I really believed in it and thought Iceberg could grow into a unique presence on the shows. So, that, yeah, that Gabe actually... You know, it, it turns out it was not just them souring based on the crowd reaction. It, Gabe really wanted to push him and was aware it would probably be a hard sell that would take time, but apparently it was just a money issue, according to Gabe. So that that... Shocked me quite a bit, actually. I
2: wonder if Iceberg regrets uh, kind of not being able to come to terms with ROH over money, because his career, I imagine, would be different if he had a big run as a top heel
1: there. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's interesting that you know you would. The way they talked about, you know, they even booked him like, oh, we're just scared of uh, Iceberg. We didn't really book him. He just showed up. That was almost like an in-joke of, you know, we really don't want him here. But according to Gabe, it was just the opposite, where he was so into him. He was like, even though this is going to be a hard sell, I was committed to, like, really pushing him. So, yeah, I guess it just goes to show you can't judge, like, a book by its cover or a lettuce by its size. It's Mm. just different stuff, but...
0: I think you can judge lettuce by (laughs) its, Or at least its firmness.
1: Well, sometimes the yeah, yeah, the firmness. Because sometimes the core, like, you think you'll get a nice big thing of lettuce and then there'll be like, a lot of the bitter, white, pithy core will be like two-thirds of the lettuce. So yes, listen to Joe's second statement. Judge it by its firmness, not its size.
2: So, what we're trying to say is, next time we decide about why Iceberg's career was how it was, we need to go up to Iceberg and just kind of squeeze him.
1: <laughs> squeeze him for information. Okay, because because unfortunately we will not be able to squeeze Daniel Bryan for information as we were hoping because he's probably staying in Aww. WWE. Aw, sad. But
2: also, but, yay! <laughs> yay, he's
1: he's back. Hopefully, okay. Yeah. Um, that brings us. I do not have a long, arduous segue for this one. To Night of the Grudges, which took place on June 14th, 2003, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, back at the National Guard Armory, in front of a crowd of 600 fans, one of those fans, which was Joe Gagne. And Joe, if you have anything during the show to add from a live perspective, obviously just chime in, in addition to the thoughts we will be asking as a home rewatcher. But one thing to go get into off the top is. When I was doing my uh, research through the newsletters for this show, a couple weeks I think before the show happened, Dave Meltzer reported in The Observer that Ring of Honor was expecting to break their all-time attendance record on this show. And for those who don't remember or haven't been listening to every episode of this show, in which case, shame on you, the all-time attendance record was 700 fans in the Elks Lodge. This show drew a reported 600 fans which I think was about what they drew on their last show in Cambridge, or at least what they reported as. Obviously, sometimes the numbers might be a little upsold. But guys, like looking at this card, do you think they had any right to think they would break their all-time attendance record? Because on paper, I think this show is about on par, or maybe a little less enticing than the last Cambridge-Massachusetts show. Like I don't know why they thought they were going to get a big bump here.
0: Well, well there were no uh, titles on the line and no kind of special guests the whole thing was kind of built around grudges you know some of which were intriguing some of which weren't so no i, I wouldn't have thought like oh this will this will be a, a blockbuster for sure
2: i guess it's just like that ROH was just had momentum and so the, the just it the brand became more popular but i will say as far as the lineup uh Paul London against AJ Styles at that point probably was incredibly enticing to the sort of fan that would go to ROH more so than a lot of matches I will just mm-hmm. say I will just say one thing um the one downside of um the new lighting where it's darker in the in the in the uh, arena or building or whatever is that you really can't tell that the crowd is bigger whereas at the first anniversary clearly was a bigger building more people this just looked the same as everything else because you really couldn't see the extent of the crowd and you know sometimes it's cool when they have a bigger than usual crowd to be able to see that on screen Well, not a huge down, not a huge problem but uh you know something i noticed
1: yeah and, oh go on joe
0: I was going to say, this was my my first show with the new lighting. And, and to your point last episode, I think it really did enhance my appreciation of the show. And I had been going to ROH shows since the start, and I certainly would have kept going. But, you know, the, the nicer production values, uh, you know, it, it made for a, a more entertaining live experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I can definitely see that. I mean, going to Matt's point, I guess the problem is, like, By making everything uniform with the dark, you know, and just the selective lighting and mostly the crowd and darkness, you know, it kind of evens everything out. Where if you're having a show in a bad looking building in a small crowd, that it's a benefit that everything just looks uniform. If you're having it in a big crowd in a nice, you know, historic building, it's a negative impact like and that's a problem art ring of honor struggles with to this day because they just had their biggest show in company history drew about what six thousand people and a complaint from fans was the way they lit it and set it and shot everything, it wouldn't it didn't you would have no idea as a home viewer that it was much different than any other Ring of Honor show when it was like by far the biggest most attended Ring of Honor show in history. So that's one problem with making everything uniform.
2: Yep, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, but yes, overall it does enhance the live and also the video experience. Just seems slicker, seems cooler, seems a little edgier. It doesn't just you know, and it just it looks like its own thing as opposed to just any random indie that you go to.
1: But yeah, this was the first show outside of Philly where they brought the lighting setup to a non-home base, and there was also two showcase matches on this release. I don't think they were. Were they recorded? Were they at this show or just saved from a previous show? Um,
0: I can confirm they were at this show. There was a third match that was not released in any form. Uh, A showcase match between a man named Flatliner and a man named Thorn, I think. Which I have not seen results of this match anywhere, but I'm pretty sure I didn't make it up. I have my original show report from the CubsFan.com some uh, (laughs) 15 years ago. But I can confirm all these matches did take place. Because one of them tied right into the... uh, the actual uh, main card itself,
1: kind of. Yes. We had Lit beating Jimmy Cash in a minute 28, and we had Dun & Marcos and Slick Wagner Brown taking on Angel Dust Slugger in Lit, with the winner of the fall getting into a four-way later, except, as we'll explain later, not really... Angel Dust won. He pinned Slick Wagner Brown after Slugger hit him from behind with the body bag. Both these matches were on the release at the end, kind of placed weird where they mm-hmm. were sold as bonus matches on the DVD that came after the last actual main card match, but before the promo. So if you wanted to like not watch these matches, as I actually skipped these, um, you couldn't just like turn off the DVD because you still wanted to see the end of show promo. So you basically just had to like skip forward to get to the pros. It was something different from Ring of Honor.
2: So on the DVD, by the DVD logic, Slick Wagner Brown's debut was in the main event of Night of the Grudges.
0: <laughs> it As was l- the main event of the uh, the showcase, and I actually like that match a lot. It's That's actually a pretty fun little match. If you uh, have the time, I would definitely go back and watch it.
1: All right. That's, that's interesting. I would not expect that, but then again, I do like Angel Dust, and I do like Dun & Marco, so, I mean, there's half the guys in that match right there, but what we see all see though starting the show the dvd proper is paul london backstage going over some of his ring of honor highlights including the michael shane ladder match the three way with styles and lowkey the epic encounter match with Brian danielson paul says he thought the the ladder match was the match of the best match of his career until tonight where he faces aj styles one on one he mentions that AJ is the newly crowned NWA heavyweight champion, which we will talk about more a little later. And says that even though the belt isn't online on the line tonight, beating AJ here would be another notch up on the levels of greatness. He says he knows he can beat AJ because he's done it before, and tonight he's going to win the number one contender's trophy and go on to win the Ring of Honor title. The only real interesting thing I thought I took from this promo was after that one show where Paul Lennon became this charisma-filled, like, wacky heel, he is right back to, like, white meat babyface here, with no explanation. Just straight-ahead, kind of stiff, Paul London babyface promo. Which is interesting,
2: because that's not totally how he works in the match.
1: Yeah, it's... I don't know when Ring of Honor learned that Paul London would be leaving and how that affected their plans, but it feels, you know, like they were going in one direction and they've kind of just grabbed hold of the wheel and, like, shifted course a little bit again.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, that's a good point. I, you know, I think it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just, like, on a match-by-match basis, which character makes sense for which match buildup. Who knows?
1: Yeah, so um, next promo is we cut to AJ Styles and Alexis Lurie somewhere else backstage. AJ is holding the Ring of Honor tag title and his newly won NWA heavyweight title. AJ motions to the NWA title and says it's another trophy to add to his collection. AJ says that London did beat him in the past in Ring of Honor, but it was a three-way where low-key had already stunned him with a key crusher. AJ says there's no low-key tonight, and he's going to beat London and then add the Ring of Honor world title to his collection, AJ Styles, the original belt collector. So, um, And that brings us to the first match on the show. The Carnage Crew of DeVito and Loke taking on and defeating the Christopher Street connection of Buffy and Mace, escorted to the ring with by Ariel, who I think was making her Ring of Honor debut here, and the Carnage Crew win in 8 minutes, 41 seconds, when Loke pinned Buffy after DeVito hit, hit him with a top rope moonsault. Um, Joe, what did you think about this as a way to start the match, and were you the fan of who got a very deep kiss from the christopher street connection before the match
0: i i was not i think i am v- briefly visible in that that gif you posted uh it was funny because i brought uh a friend with me who was just a wwe fan never really been to independent wrestling and this is like the first thing he sees and he turns to me he says what did you take me to which was in, uh, a valid question uh this match had some, uh, you know, I, I kind of get a kick out of the Christmas Tree Connection giving these Archie Bunker types the business, and um, I thought the uh, commentary was had some just weirdly laughable lines, like when, uh, I forget, uh, when Gabriel, uh, Chris Levy, I think, was speculating if uh, Ariel likes girls, and he adds, <laughs> like me, at the end.
2: <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> and it's, was, I, I actually can remember this. Uh, I think she's going to be leaning toward the female side, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh my god. Oh my they
0: God! and they implore like, "Oh, go to the hard cam," and it's like you're not in the Georgia Dome; like you're in a rec center. Like we'll <laughs> still be able to see everything uh, as a match. It, it wasn't it wasn't a whole lot, but uh, it was short, and uh, and that was that.
1: Um, Matt, uh, there definitely seemed to be a like as, as we've gone through this journey, it, it's a step up the commentary, but there definitely seemed to be a still a lot of now it's gone from homophobia like overt like hate. Full homophobia to more just haha, they're funny but we gotta tell you a lot that we like girls and we're gonna hit the strip club after and like we're straight we, we can enjoy this and still be straight like right did you any takeaways from this match other than that
2: well first of all so since their baby faces now a lot of fans were kissing Buffy and you know gay or not um no matter what the uh, the genders of the people involved I have to think that just Kissing a bunch of strangers on the mouth in a row is not the most sanitary thing you can do. I mean, I guess people kiss strangers all the time, at, like bars and clubs and stuff. But <laughs> it does, it doesn't. It's I don't know. Just seeing somebody just like kiss a bunch of people on the mouth in a row, regardless of their gender. Um, I don't know. It's it's probably not. It's not sanitary. I don't think. But hey, uh, I guess it's part of the fun. Living on the edge a little bit. Um, uh I, I yeah there was a lot of gay baiting spots in the match um you know just the you know the, the straddle cover and butt grabs and spanking and at one point doug gentry on commentary was like this is roh not cinemax which i thought was a very good uh <laughs> kept it in kept it in time um and then um there was a moment right before DeVito like beat the crap out of uh, out of Mace, where he's like, "You want to be gay, motherfucker?" and then just beat the crap out of him. It's like, yep, very uh, I don't know, uh, very uh, barbaric, I guess is how I would describe it. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean the Car- the, the Christopher connection again are entertaining. The Carnage crew are a pretty good tag team. Um, so uh, as far as like moves and stuff. They, uh, they try to go for a double-team pump handle, but Mace falls over, and Gabe goes, oh, very nice counter by Mace. <laughs> <laughs> he just dropped down. So uh, G- Gabe is, has still not quite mastered the art of covering for uh, for botches because he'll just, like, try way too hard to act like it was on purpose. Um, so Loke covers Mace, and Mace kicks out. Buffy uh, comes in the ring, and Loke says, get the fuck out of here! And Buffy yells, I didn't do a thing to you, bitch. And the crowd went crazy. I actually like that a lot cuz just Buffy is just a really good delivery. He's just he's just like Buffy's just he's literally like um, Buffy I mean Luke just like looks over and he sees Buffy standing just in the corner. And he's just like get the fuck out of here and Buffy just yells top of his lungs, I didn't do a fuck to you, bitch. Mm-hmm. I I just enjoyed that very very much. I had to say it twice. Um, so Buffy gets a hot tag, lots of clotheslines, Bronco Buster by Mace, uh, then um, they both, the, Car- the Christopher Street Connection, they kiss mid-ring, and both announcers act like 12-year-olds, because of course they do. Um, Gabe on Loke, and DeVito, um, DeVito breaks up a spike pile driver. Christopher Street Connection kisses both Carnage crew members, and then DeVito pins Buffy with a moonsault.
1: It's funny how far we've gone in wrestling where, you know, back then kissing another guy was the most shocking, horrific spot ever, and like... 15 years later, the young bucks would, like, do the thing where they hit the ropes a hundred times and then kiss Adam Cole simultaneously on the cheek, and that's like a baby face spot to a big reaction, and no one acts like it's a big deal. Like.
2: Yeah, but uh, but if two guys start making out in the middle of the ring, I don't know <laughs> that the reaction would be all that much different. I hope the announcers <laughs> would treat it differently, at the very least, but I, I, I'm I sca- look
0: forward to that spot in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. They, uh... <laughs> Oh, God, all sorts of politics today. Oh, man.
2: Um, speaking, um, speaking of problematic, though, the the post-match. Yes.
1: Uh, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. I, I actually believe it or not have a couple of thoughts on this match. Um, first off, Matt, when you said... Uh, there was a lot of tag... I mean, clotheslines in Buffy's comeback. I almost laughed because one of my notes here says Buffy's hot tag is entirely clotheslines. <laughs> like, there is nothing but clotheslines in his hot tag. That's the only thing he knew to do. Um, I, I agree that the Christopher Street connection are really entertaining, but I do feel like their act... It doesn't have a lot of staying power. Like, they do the same stuff. Like, this was just a... Ooh, like the the Whitman sampler of the Christopher Street Connection, every single sexual spot they they've ever done you know kisses, ass grab, testicular claw, bronco buster, the crawling over top for the, the straddle pin, as you said, um, just every single thing. And so there, there it was mostly like a little bit of basic wrestling, and then just every jokey gay spot. It almost felt like a throwback to the first year of two thousand the early two thousand two Ring of Honor shows. The big difference and being that they're faces now. Yeah, yes. And I did like that after um after they won and we before we get to the the aftermatch thing, that's even more of a throwback. Um I forget if it's Doug or Gay, but they say something like this win proves that the Carnage crew um they not only win their Christopher Street connection feud, so there's that weird Ring of Honor thing again where they always have to proclaim when someone's won a feud but um it's just, it says they said this proves that the carnage crew can work any style what style of match <laughs> was this they can work
2: basic <laughs> opening match
1: comedy style
2: which is kayfabe terms not a style i don't yeah, think
1: exactly um, like so yeah after the match um the carnage crew then get ariel and do their second rope spike pile driver on her for no good reason except just to do it, and I guess that explains why they actually did not do the second rope pile driver, which is their normal normal finish during the match proverbs, because they were saving it for Ariel. The crowd chants one more time, and the Carnage crew tees doing it a second time, and then F- Loke flips off the crowd and they leave to lots of booze. So they will not give you it a second time. Ariel's sole purpose on this show. Was to get Spike Piledrive. Like, um, there was no other reason, there's nothing else she did on this show. This is the end of a feud. She hadn't managed, I don't believe she had managed a Christopher Street connection before. This was, this felt a lot like the first few Ring of Honor shows where, I'll say, um, Matt, I've appointed the last few shows to be our, um, our man-on-woman violence referee on the close calls. This was not a close call. This was right back to the, as clear cut as you can get, very forced, like, we just gotta have one of these on every show style man-on-woman violence moment.
2: Yeah, this was this was a lot. Um, and, and also, you know, heels doing it to a babyface and the crowd giving it the second biggest babyface reaction of the night, um, <laughs> which we'll get to the first one pretty soon. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I I really wonder when they're going to stop. I, I, do we want to take, like, guesses on how many shows it's going to be until something like this does not happen?
1: I don't know. I know Joe, and I, I had to apologize, because mis- Joe, on the first episode he guessed on, said it happened at the next two shows in Boston he attended. Uh, I mistakenly thought that... Uh, like misinterpreted that as the next two ring of honor shows period but it was the next two boston so we know because joe tipped us off that the next boston show will have man-on-woman violence so matt th- you're basically asking do we think they will break the streak before they return to boston yep that's
2: pretty much what we're asking i think no but i don't remember I pr- this is just a guess i think the streak will continue unbroken
1: I have to agree. And Joe, were you one of the people cheering in the crowd for this pile driver? The younger you can admit if you did, the younger, fifteen year younger Joe Gagney, who liked young thrills like <laughs> Man <laughs> on War and driver.
0: Oh God. <laughs> Absolutely. I have the written proof in my show review. I was disgusted by this, but only because of the the, the, the low st- <laughs> the low stakes and possible low payout that some poor person <laughs> would take this punishing move, not so much the uh, the gender issues. Let's start. So- yeah.
1: And again, it was just so so like, I guess blatant in a way that it hasn't been for a couple shows, you know. Especially when you realize again, Ariel is literally just out there doing the Allison Danger gimmick of like the colorful. I guess I hate to say this, but there's no better term for this tag. You know the the woman who pals around with gay people. How do
2: I how do I bleep on on audacity?
1: Look, Matt. This is a a Will and Grace reboot world. I'm not saying it with malice. Gay people are just as good as us, often better, certainly in terms of taste and clothes. But that is just the best way to describe the character she was playing and only playing to get attacked by men. Bleep! Okay. (laughs) Uh, one One day we should save all the things you've had to edit out because of me. And a couple I, from
2: you. I've had to edit a couple of things from me too. Yeah. Um, that and by the way, think of that sentence for a second and you might know what I had to edit out.
1: <laughs> so next we um we have a match that kind of surprised me when I was looking up the results because it is Chance Beckett in his one and all and only ring of honor match taking on Matt striker and Matt striker defeats him in 11 minutes, 13 seconds when striker made Ch- Beckett submit to the striker lock. So before I hand it over to Matt for this one, um, you might not people who listen, who don't have a lot of knowledge of, early 2000s indie wrestling might not know who chance Beckett was. He was a guy who, this was probably right around the high point of his career because shortly before this match, which would be his only ring of honor match. As far as I know, he had gone to the finals of the super eight against Paul London. And so I would, I imagine that's probably what got him this booking this match. We'll get into our individual opinions in just a second. I'll say that in the observer, Dave wrote from the crowd report, The lone match on the show that did not get over was Matt Stryker versus Chance Beckett, making his Ring of Honor debut, which the crowd turned on without even giving them a chance. And I don't think Dave was aware of the pun of that, but... um, (laughs) But the other, and then finally, the, the last thing uh, I'm going to say before I turn over to Matt is, so I was trying to do some research on, on Chance Beckett with the usual stuff. You go to cage match, places like that. His hometown is Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. I live in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. I have for two thirds of my life. Um, I think he's been on a show I've seen. I did not remember Chance Beckett. So I I feel guilty about saying that, that I should know him, but it seems weird. My my city's like a, for those who don't know, probably it's like seven hours from Vancouver, probably only a population of 120,000, maybe 200,000 if you consider the outlying areas. And so just probably like one of the most famous athletes to come from my city. I mean, there's been a few, no, actually there's been a few other athletes, but like had no idea. And so he's in, the Matt,
2: t- he's in the top 25 most famous athletes to ever come from Kelowna, British Columbia? Is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: definitely. Okay. Definitely in the top 25. And um, Matt, what did, what did, you, did you feel like the crowd did not give this match the chance it deserved? <laughs> wink, wink, chance, chance.
2: Uh, well, I actually thought that at the beginning, the crowd was into it. Um, I actually made a note that the crowd, you know, has really consistently been into the Matt Stryker, like, pure wrestling openings lately, and this, I thought, was no exception. Um, you know, the, the I, thought, I think that Stryker is sort of, at this point, carved out a pretty good niche for himself as like the pure wrestling guy on the show who does a pure wrestling match you know every time out i think the crowd is excited for it uh the announcers also they make a point to say that he's in the top five because uh the the top five this time was like the first spot is vacant because there's a match tonight for the number one contenders trophy between aj and uh london then daniels uh london homicide and Matt Stryker is it, rounds out the uh, the list at number five. So I think they've actually done a pretty good job with top five at this point. I don't know if you'd agree. Like, it feels like it means something, which I didn't remember, actually, because usually when they do stuff like this, it falls away pretty quickly. And I actually think this is actually – the top five has actually lasted longer than I thought. It's been a few shows, and it actually feels like it matters. Uh, I don't know if you – do you agree with that, that the top five feels I, I, I... pretty good?
1: I kind of disagree. Like the the top five makes sense, and they've stuck with it, but like it's I'm never remembering it. I'm never thinking like, oh, that's going to get him up to spot number three tonight. You know, I I just yeah, but and, and it's never like It's I don't know. There's just something about it that it, you know it's not memorable. And well, I don't.
2: Has any promotion really ever done a the thing with, with their top list where it's actually like memorable?
1: Well, even WCW didn't really... like. I, it wasn't memorable when they used to do the WCW Top 10. I, And they were a company that had the advantage that indies don't have, which is you have a roster that is guaranteed exclusive to you.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's and, the Graphics 16 Top 10 to you. Oh, nice. <laughs> I did not remember that um,
2: sponsorship.
1: <laughs> me neither. Um, Although we think about early 90s WCW and TurboGrafx-16 are a perfect match. Yeah. But,
2: but as I said in the, on other shows, I, I'm, just, I'm one of the few people left, I think, that's still a sucker for this, like, Matt Stryker style where it's, they're doing the reversals and the quick, you know, takedowns and sit-outs and all that stuff. I just like it. It's, it. When it's, like, smoothly done, it's just, I don't know. I just think it's fun. I didn't think that Beckett really was able to hang with it. He uh, didn't look quite as smooth with the counter-wrestling as uh, some of the other guys did. Um, he does a dragon sleeper, and, and Striker rolls to the ropes. They do a test of strength, which you do not see too much in ROH. Uh, Stryker gets the advantage, but Chance bridges impressively. Like, you know, like Brian Danielson would do the bridge out of the test of strength, and uh, Beckett does that, um, and Stryker tries to knock him down, and he doesn't get knocked down. Um, Beckett rolls out, turns it into a neck breaker, which is kind of cool, but so he's continuously whipped into, the, into a tree of woe, and Stryker... Um, striker drop kicks him in the, in that position so uh, the crowd goes the crowd starts to get quiet at this point because Beckett locks on a chin lock um, eventually the crowd starts chanting for striker um, you also don't see too many chin locks in 2003 ROH if you think about it um, I don't know I actually can't think of too many matches where you have chin locks at all <laughs> um, Beckett no sells chops and goes for a pile driver but striker backdrops him uh, Beckett drops the blocks the striker lock and grabs a reverse cloverleaf. Striker reverse, and that's sort of like a, a callback to the Chad Collier stuff, because Chad Collier uses the regular cloverleaf. Uh, striker mm-hmm. reverses out into the striker lock. Beckett struggles to the ropes, but eventually taps. Um, I just thought Beckett didn't look very good, but Striker still liked th- I enjoyed Matt Striker. I didn't think this match was particularly good just because I thought Beckett felt a little bit clunky and unsure of himself, uh, maybe a little bit nervous, I don't know. But I thought the crowd did give it a chance but i thought that i did i did i did think they definitely lost them
1: so joe what did you think and do you have any other experience with uh chance beckett other than this match
0: no this was the only time he ever made it to a new england area and cage match doesn't have him wrestling a whole lot longer after this no uh as for the match itself uh, i was surprised how little beckett got to shine like he would hit a big neck breaker i'm thinking oh he's taking over and then 30 seconds later Stryker would be back on offense And Beckett locked on a submission move, like, oh, big moment, but Stryker just gets out and then taps him out with a trailer hitch. And I I kind of appreciated the parallels they tried to draw between Beckett and Chad Collier, who'd given Stryker problems before. You know, I like, you know, there were moments I liked. It didn't really come together. There were some moments of awkwardness, like, I think Beckett tried to, like, a knee in the gut when Stryker was coming off the ropes. He just fell over. I wasn't sure who got hurt. It just never really, never really coalesced like you'd hope.
1: Yeah, um, I, uh Something that me and Matt have gone through the last couple shows is I think, like I think Matt Stryker is a very polished, competent, quality wrestler in some respects. I I think his, I'm not in, quite into his mat work as into his mat work as Matt is. I think because well, you know we we have the we have the, between Matt
2: and me and we and then the mat work we have all the mat in common. So I think it makes sense <laughs> that I would
1: like it. Yeah. I mean the Matt trifecta. There's only yeah. one Matt for me in my heart, and uh-huh. it's already taken. Stryker, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. And work. You're talking it's about. You're, ta- you're talking about Matt Thompson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for state who? It's only Thompson, the editor, um, senior
2: editor of the Atlantic.
1: I don't know <laughs> Matt Thompson. I-, I feel like that, that's a nice esoteric reference. Um, st- yeah, I-, I feel like Stryker's work. It's just a little too unfocused. Like. He he rarely, in a match like this, he's not really trying to tell a story. But it's all, like, it's very technically proficient how he does it. And it, it, this is something I'm probably, you know, I, I'm the one that's on the outside looking in on this. Because as Matt has said in the past and said here, like, the, crowd's, the crowd has patience from. The crowd enjoys him. The, I think the crowd, like Matt said, is looking forward to him now as kind of like, the replacement Danielson of hooray, like we're going to get some technical wrestling when Matt Stryker comes out. But about this match, I think Joe hit the nail on the head of, I was surprised how little like high impact, like, a signature offense Ch- chance Beckett got like this match got a, a solid amount of time, but it actually felt like it was missing almost all the offense you would expect from chance Beckett at the end of the match. Like he got to, in the last few minutes, he got to hit like very little of anything memorable at all. Like I, I feel like the, the people's opinions of this match would be a lot different if it was like two minutes longer and had a, whatever signature moves chance Beckett can do in it to make it more of a back and forth, exciting final couple minutes, because it had the solid usual buildup apart from that weird knee to the gut miscommunication spot. Joe mentioned, but like the only memorable move I, I, I can remember chance Beckett doing is a slingshot where he held onto the leg and transitioned into a single leg Boston crap. And he did almost nothing else memorable. Like I'm looking at my notes. I wrote his selling is solid He got fired up when he got chopped once. Uh, He had a good neck bridge. Like, very little. And I don't know, again, if, I don't know whose fault that is, obviously, because I was not in the match. But it was definitely weird, because it feels like most Ring of Honor matches where a new guy comes in, if it gets 10 minutes or more, the guys usually work it to make sure everyone gets a chance to shine. And I don't know if Chance Beckett had it in him to shine, but it didn't even feel like he got the chance here.
2: Again, it's very hard to not have fun with Chance Beckett. Um, yeah, he, I don't even realize what I'm doing. <laughs> and now and, and in ROH, especially at this point, I assume there was nobody really like laying out matches with the wrestlers besides the participants in the match. Is, is, is that true? It's pretty much just the guys doing it for themselves. And, you know, they, they say, this is your spot. This is your time. And then they just figure it out.
1: Yeah, I think so. Especially, like, maybe the closest they'll get to a road agent in the coming years is, like, I think there's reports of wrestlers who would go over things with Ricky Steamboat, maybe, when he would be backstage. But I don't think they really had an official, you know... like I I don't think Gabe was micromanaging them like like a road agent would. So you'd think that Beckett would be like, hey, let me get some of my stuff in. Yeah, yeah. Again... It's weird, and I would assume that this performance is what got him to not have another booking again. Although maybe next episode I'll come back and I'll find a different Gabe MySpace blog where it turns <laughs> out Chance Beckett was going to get a monster push before he like wanted too big of a payout. So Check,
2: check Friendster this time. You never know what gems <laughs> lie there. <laughs>
1: Oh, God! we got some, we, we are bringing our A-plus game on the references today. <laughs> TurboGrafx-16, The Atlantic Editor, I mean, we're killing on, if nothing else, best reference episode yet. Yay. Um, Next up, we have a four-corner match, Homicide defeating the debuting Chris Saban the debut not the debuting but the second uh, ring of honor match of john walters and the debuting in ring of honor just incredible it homicide wins in 1357 when he made john walters submit to his inverted stf like kind of leg tide thing that he made punk submit to although this time he didn't do as much of an stf he just kind of grabbed walters head and pulled back on it so going into the start of this match this was supposed to be the uh one of the showcase pre-show matches we talked about, Angel Dust was supposed to win his spot into this four-way. Angel Dust starts to come out, and he gets laid out by a surprise debuting, just incredible. Dave Meltzer and The Observer wrote at the time, well, they, and they being Ring of Honor, know that anytime a named guy shows up unannounced, it's an easy pop. This was said to have been a shocking reaction and one of the biggest pops in com- company history. Now, when I read that, I thought whoever's telling you that Dave is full of shit. When I watch this, at worst, it is the top three or top five pops uh, I have seen in Ring of Honor so far, and it might be the biggest pop. Like it's up there with the end of a couple of those big Danielson Low Key, like the first couple of matches they had, where the three way and the singles match. The uh, I-, I could not believe how loud and nuts this crowd went. For no offense to him, but for Just Incredible. (laughs) Like, Joe, being there live, do you remember how loud this was?
0: Oh, my original note says, you would think Dynamite Kid came out, stood out of his wheelchair, and agreed to wrestle in the match. Like, people just went completely nuts for this. And I I think it goes to the, you know, the benefits of a surprise. Because if they had just advertised Just Incredible, people would have been like, eh. But the fact that he just kind of showed up unannounced with his theme music, he made a surprise appearance... You know, he cut a promo in the ring. While poor John Walters was just hanging out on the outside because <laughs> he came out first. I felt bad for him. He
2: said yeah. "fuck," which the crowd really loved.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, I like how <laughs> they later on said, oh, "That's first, uh, Gabe said, that's the first ECW chant you've heard on." ring of honor because everyone else imitates but not us but you gotta pay respects to the legends so i don't (laughs) know if that's true there's never been an ecw champ before that that feels wrong but i'll i'll take his word for it
1: there might have been one when tommy dreamer showed up but i think in general gabe is right but I, I agree. Like Gabe was pretty defensive of just the idea. of... <laughs> yeah. Like it, it was, it was his excuse to get a little shiv in on the XPWs of the world, and basically be like, you know, well, okay, you might hear an ECW chant now, but normally you wouldn't. Like just Gabe trying, just getting his little needles in where he can. But so yeah, for the match itself, um, this is probably this is getting to be a habit. But I thought this was like these four ways. They're, they're, so most of them are the same to me. They're just, they're not bad. They're not good. It's the same stuff where they adhere to tags and trade off. And then there's a big dive train in the fi- final few minutes. Everyone forgets about tags and they all start just hitting near falls and breaking up pins. And then the match ends and you never remember it. Like five minutes after it's over, you forget it ever happened. Um, like I, I, when I was thinking about this match the other day, about how many of these four ways, I think I realized these have to be like the ultimate booking crutch. And that sounds a bit meaner than I mean to, for it to come off. But like, you can put a debuting guy in the match, and if you put him in with a couple um, established guys, you don't have to worry about the match dying a death. And you can put a couple established guys in the match like they did on the last show, Punk and. Uh, daniels and hype who punk's gonna confront daniels without giving away a single smash like i imagine if you if i was a booker these four ways would be so tempting because they help fill out the card and you don't really give away anything but i i'm just i am not into them they feel so disposable and they don't even feel like a stylistic like role the way scrambles do because it was a scramble it's always like crazy spot fest. With the four ways, it's always just kind of just middle of the road and a wild last few minutes. So, I can get into a bit more of details after, but I've yapped enough. Um, Matt, what did you think about this match Like as a whole? Am I being too hard on it?
2: Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say you're being too hard on it because everything you're saying I agree with. I I think I might mind the fact of that a little bit less than you. Like I think it's okay to just have a... Unforgettable, I mean, an unmemorable, unforgettable, no, an unmemorable, (laughs) uh, but fairly, you know, exciting, logic free match with some big names in it every show, you know, especially considering, you know, booking for the live audience. Um, You know, I think it's probably a, a highlight for the live audience, even if the matches aren't particularly, you know, special. So, but so I don't think anything you said is not true. I just maybe mind that a little bit less. But you know, um, there were some, you know, amusing parts of this match, though. Um, one early part was when Doug said on commentary after Credible came, what an incredible addition to this match, as far as not noticing puns that you're making. Um, <laughs> um, then there, you know, there were some cool moves, um, so, um, 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 I'm trying to just look at myself. Oh, yeah, so Walters did an STF at Jay on homicide, and J-Train's on the outside going, that's a chokehold, which I just <laughs> think is very funny coming from him. Um, there was this really cool spot where um, Walters did, like, a tornado divorce court, which is like an arm DDT. Uh, Walters did some cool stuff. Walters hit the lung blower um, on homicide and the crowd actually popped this time. Cause I remember noting on the last show that when he, had, when he hit it off the second rope, uh, nobody really seemed to care, which I thought was weird. Cause that's an actual, that's a pretty cool move. Um, yeah. but the crowd actually was into it this time. Another thing that I enjoyed was Gabe foreshadowing later angles because he mentioned that Justin incredible was wearing one of those controversial jinx shirts.
1: And very controversial.
2: I, I was very happy to have that reference back again. I, um, I also noticed that Just Incredible's uh, jean shorts were straight out of 1996. Right. There are no, there's no way that the way Just Incredible dressed in this was even close to cool in 2003. Um, so that's another uh, thing that made Just Incredible fit in perfectly well in ROH, I guess. I don't know. Um, there's uh, There's a spot where like Walters had like a surfboard on Sabin with like pulling back his arms and homicide came in and at uh, to add extra pressure and then credible credible came in and super kicked homicide to the outside and then they kind of went into their whole dive thing and I thought that was pretty that was a pretty fun spot um, Walters hit this like power bomb into a DDT on Sabin which I thought was pretty cool um, Credible hit a uh, That's Incredible on Homicide, and it got uh, broken up. And then Homicide was back in, like, really quickly. That, that's one issue with this match. It's like, that's the guy's finisher. It seems to be a devastating move, and it really wasn't sold that much. Um, and, uh, not, you know. And then the finish came pretty quickly after that. So, yeah, I, I agree with you about the match. I just think that that's fine. I guess that's sort of how I feel
1: about it. Joe, uh, I got your first impression on the reaction. Do you have any more thoughts about the match itself?
0: Well, I know last time I complained about guys just kind of tagging out of four-way, like not caring even though it could cost them the match. There seemed to be more of an emphasis on that because Walters and Homicide were in for quite a bit to start until Sabin kind of snuck in a tag and then Walters had to tag out because he was in a lot of trouble. And I appreciated kind of that a uh, bit more move towards logic. Of course, things just kind of went... All haywire at the end, but yeah, none of your complaints are wrong. But you know, this was a lot of energy, and I totally didn't mind it.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I think of the live report said, sorry, man, I'll get to you in a second, said this was the uh, second best match on the show. I don't know if I would put this ahead of the, uh, the next match on the show, but obviously some people liked it.
2: Yeah, and one other thing I, I, I put in my notes, after Homicide won, the crowd booed. And Gabe, of course, does his awkward explanation thing where he's like, well, that's because he's from NYC, you know, and they just be Boston. <laughs> but, uh, but the crowd does like Homicide. Just want to let you know they like him. It's just, you know, NYC beating Boston. It's, what, it's, what I always love him. i I always love it when he trips on himself
1: also because that was a case where like the truth is a much better like just say this is john Walter's hometown you know like why can't you say that like oh they would normally cheer homicide but this is john Walter's hometown like why have to make up this weird like it's because the yankees beat the red sox that's such a weird like way to go that's that feels like something that vince would pipe tell you to say over a headset yeah in
2: in toronto in toronto or something
1: yeah this is Bizarro World fans. I don't know why they why they're booing. You know, Homicide here, he's the best, but Big Dog. Um, the only other thing, I guess that that's the one other impression I was left from this match was I wouldn't say they should have called an audible, but it definitely felt like it. The way the match went, kind of went against. The natural inclinations of this particular crowd, because John Walters was very over because it's his home area. And in fact, any anytime that John Walters is not wrestling for an extended length of time, there's this portion of the crowd that starts chanting, "We want Walters." And yet he's the one that ends up taking the fall to homicide who's the baby face that you want to really put over and probably rehab after the Joe loss on the last show. But yet, instead, it ends up getting him booed because he's—you know—he just beat the hometown guy, and likewise, just incredible gets this huge reaction. Just Incredible, I don't think, wrestles for the first four or five minutes of the match. And when he does come in, the very first thing he does is get punched in the face by Chris Saban and spit a giant loogie in the air. And and Just Incredible actually doesn't do that much in this match. Like, he gets a few spots. But I thought it was just funny where maybe they weren't expecting John Walters and Just Incredible to get such big reactions. But, like, knowing what I know now, if I was, you know, booking out this match, if, if he was allowed to do it, I would have had maybe Chris Sabin take the fall and a little more just incredible rather than, you know, have the two most over guys, one, not being it that much, and two, take the direct loss to the big baby face. I think that
2: that's a fair point. Of course, you can't have Homicide losing, as you as you know, because he'd be losing to a
1: bunch of noobs. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there was two other options, but no. Yeah, and it, but although it would have been weird if he'd be credible immediately. Yeah. And, Also funny was, uh, not funny, but Gabe doesn't really make many WWE jabs, but I always get interested when he does, knowing now that he's working with them. And he said something here like, Credible's probably pretty, like, he looks pissed off. He's probably pretty pissed off about the two years of his life he wasted in WWE because Credible had just come from the WWE. And every time I hear one of those comments now, knowing where Gabe is now, where he's like, this isn't sports entertainment or stuff like that, I'm just like, Oh, Gabe.
2: Isn't it sad how Gabe is wasting his life right now?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I feel for him. Um, After the match, the camera follows Homicide as he walks back through the curtain. And we see him celebrate with his street crew, uh, Julie Smokes, and I... Didn't quite recognize the other guy. I, I some of those guys blend together for me. Um, Low key is there as well, even though he's not wrestling, he's still injured legitimately. He's he's backstage, and he's pissed that Homicide is hanging out with you know his his street boys again. Homicide says he needs his crew there to be his backup, and there's a little bit of tension between Smokes and Key. He walks away, and Homicide tries to, you know, to call him back. He doesn't want him to walk away angry. But Smokes tells him not to worry about it, and then they talk about going to a strip club.
2: I, uh, I like this storyline. Uh, I like, story I like how the tension. I think Loki's doing a good job. I think it adds intrigue. I don't think it really pays off very well for various reasons, but I think that it's, uh, it's a good idea, at least.
0: Yeah, this was, uh, that was Loki's only appearance on the DVD, although not the actual show itself, as we'll get to.
1: Yeah. Ah, okay, uh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, th- th- that's actually another great reason to have Joe on, is there's something we'll get to that you know was in the live reports, but not on the show at all involving him. Um, yeah, I agree, Matt. This is a really good angle, and I think it's something to the quality of 2003 Ring of Honor, how we've really been in love with it the last few shows, that like there's going to be a big angle tonight that ends and completely fizzles out, and they've got another big angle going on with this low-key homicide, smokes three love triangle that will not really have a resolution and yet we're still praising 2003 so heavy like there's so many good things going on that like angles can go nowhere or have no real good resolution and it's still like well there's still a lot of other good stuff on these on the show so
2: yes and of course both angles fizzle out in part because some of the main people that those angles are built around have issues that cause them to not appear on shows
1: (laughs) Some very different issues. But, yes, uh, we go to the next match. The end, I believe, the, the main event of the first half. Gabe always believed in you want to have like a main event before intermission, like a pretty big match, and then you kind of start from scratch after intermission and build up again. So almost like two mini shows. So this would have been his main event of the first half. No disqualification tag match. BJ Whitmer and Raven taking on the Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana. Punk and Cabana win this match when Colt pins B.J. Whitmer after hitting the Colt 45. They win in 16 minutes, 49 seconds. Before the match starts, Punk gets on the mic and he cuts a promo very similar to the one he caught on the last Ring of Honor show where it's Punk starting to feel his um, anti-hero oats a bit where instead of just calling down everyone in the crowd, he asks his supporters to throw up the X with their arms and, you know, praises them while he calls down the rest of the people. Punk says his revolution will destroy ravens, and he also compares himself to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Yes. Which, I, guess, um, I guess
2: I guess Malcolm X does have an X in his name, and he, I think he was straight edge, you know? <laughs> if you think about I, I
1: believe, it. <laughs> I believe people probably said throw up the X in the olden days, but there was probably a different audience with a different implication. Right um (laughs) raven gets on the mic to respond he says the last time he faced punk he made a mistake he was happy now he says he's miserable and he's bringing all his hate and loathing with him raven tries to do his long sometimes a choice is made for us and sometimes there's no choice at all catchphrase but a punk fan heckles him during this the raven fans chat loud and overpower the punk fans though and then we get Raven's usual, welcome to Ravens, Clockwork Orange, House of Fun, quote the Raven, nevermore. Raven, at this point, his promos are almost more catchphrases than non-catchphrases. It's like 60% catchphrase because they're so long. And But as for the match, Joe, what did you think about kind of, a kind of match you didn't see much of in Ring of Honor at this point, like or maybe at any point, uh, more ECW-ish, crowd brawly type of match? What did you think live?
0: I didn't see much of anything because they, oh, yeah. they were brawling uh, away from my section. Sometimes you'd hear a chair clang or you'd see someone's legs go in the air as they got body slammed, but that's about it. So Thankfully, the DVD filled in uh, a couple of the gaps there. I, I really like the the crowd brawling portions. Uh, it, the way they bookended it as kind of a normal match was a bit odd. I almost wish they kind of just went all out in that regard. Uh, I just want to say how much I really like the Colt Cabana-CM Punk pairing. I think having you know a goofball is one of Punk's lackeys is just i don't know I, I get a lot more out of that than if it's just like you know like a luke gallows or something you know similar yes. serious mindset
2: exactly it's yeah.
0: just I, I yeah like when you know colt tries to do the i forget the dancing double team elbow and punk is like what are you doing and i don't know stuff like that just it resonates a lot more with me
1: um matt what did you think especially we've seen now a couple of these more raven style matches where i think you you see a lot of his fingerprints on them what did you think about this one compared to say the last um tag we saw from these guys uh
2: these matches continue to surprise me in how much i like them um i like legitimately thought this was great i um there's just lots of drama good crowd heat um like i was just just very very impressed um you know, there's there's always a f- the funny stuff, like um, during the Raven promo, when um, a guy in the crowd yelled, fuck you to Raven, and Gabe was like, oh, it must be one of those straight edgers. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, always like pulling out the funny stuff.
1: Um, Not a guy who doesn't like smoking a bowl like us, right, Doug? Like, <laughs> yeah. the usual Gabe stuff.
2: Exactly. Um, now... Gabe calls this on commentary the greatest feud in ROH history, which it's like, you could make that argument, but not at this point, right? Like, it's, I, I almost wonder, like, did he record this commentary, like, much later after several other shows had happened? I thought
1: that was weird, too, and also, it's only, Ring of Honor's only been around for a little over a year, and for some of that time ran one show a month, like... <laughs> It's like if a baby said this was the best meal I've ever had, and they're like four months old. If a baby could talk, Box yes, baby.
2: Yeah, so maybe even at this point, it was still the best match in ROH history, just because they had like promos and stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no, I've, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed it. Gabe keeps calling Punk a man of integrity, even though I still feel like he cheats a lot. I don't know, but um, you know, there's um, there's a chair shots to the head, of course, which is. You know, I think it's just going to be, have to be something that we just accept happened back then, because or else it's going to be hard to watch any of these these matches. Um, but I don't know, I just thought it was, you know, a lot of good drama. Like you said the fighting in the crowd was really cool. Then back in the ring, you know, they do they they do settle down into a regular match with the Saints, kind of working over Whitmer, and the crowd is cheering Whitmer on. And I thought Whitmer did a good job, and Cabana was punching at his cut, which I know that you always enjoy, Trevor. Um, yes. And uh, then he takes out Raven as he tries to get back in. So they actually do a good job with the regular tag team stuff, too. Um, And then, um, so um, let's see with some other highlights. So Punk goes for a second rope, um, Rana, but Whitmer moves and Punk Rana's cabana. And I was like, okay, that's that's different. Raven gets the hot tag, fires up takes out the Second City Saints with knees, hits a bulldog, clothesline combo on the Saints, drop toe holds Cabana through the ropes, um, hits the Raven effect on Punk, just just like that, which I think, weren't they trying to build that up for a really long time? Yeah. And yeah. they just, just out of nowhere, he just hits it and Cabana pulls Raven out of the ring. So I guess they just decided, let's forget about that whole Raven effect thing and just, you know, just <laughs> yeah. move on. Um, Whitmer, like top rope, headbutts Punk, but Cabana pulls the ref out of the ring. After two. Um, so, I guess, and they say there's no DQ and there's no Code of Honor in the match. Uh, Whitmer Exploder 98's Cabana into the ring, but there's no ref. Um, Punk hits a Shining Wizard with a chair into Whitmer. Still no ref. Raven throws the ref into the ring, and the delay allows Whitmer to kick out. Cabana hits a Colt 45 on Whitmer and gets the pin. I just thought, really good drama, fast-paced. Uh, I don't know. I was, I was impressed. I've been impressed with this stuff.
1: Um, I-, I thought this was good. I-, I think all these Raven matches so far, they've surprised me too. I think they've all been consistently like, like just right, solidly good. Like not even, you know, the above average, like just none of them have been something I would put on a year end list, but they've all been good. And part of me wonders if I'm enjoying them more. Cause I haven't seen much ECW in a long time because Like, these feel like very classic Raven ECW matches where you can see the layout. There's lots of bells and whistles and storyline moments and different elements to it. But yet, in ECW, by the end, like, fans were getting really sick of those Raven matches. But here, maybe it's just because they're so. You don't see matches like this in Ring of Honor. They seem fresh and like it works on me. And maybe there will come a time later in this year where I'll be sick of them. But so far, I haven't hit that point. I I, I find them fun because they're completely different from pretty much everything on the show.
2: They have a lot of personality, which is different from a lot of matches also.
1: Like, going to... If if the Chance Beckett uh, match-striker match felt like a match that needed a road agent, like, Ravens matches always feel like they've been very very deliberately plotted but in a good way like in this match it starts out immediately with um punk stomping a mud hole in raven but raven immediately gets revenge and does the same to him like they have a punk as you've said punk hits um bj with a hard chair shot colt does the same to colt i mean uh raven does the same to colt and then they have a chair stand off but then punk runs away like a chicken raven chases him to the back pulls punk back and now punk is bleeding like a very big gusher blade job which might be one of the pictures i think there's a smile he gives at the end of the match covered in blood that might be the picture for this episode but like all those those beats you can you can almost in your mind imagine like raven plotting each of those beats out like telling punk you know we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll go brawl in the crowd, you know. And it felt very ECW-ish, like all of it, in a good way, right down to like Raven even getting the crowd members to hold on to the garbage can so he can smash Punk into it. Like, yeah, that almost, that fan brings the weapons vibe to it, even though that wasn't this match. Um, The thing that bugged me was the thing, Matt, you brought up, which is, For two or three... I mean, since the start of this feud, they've been building as the central point of this feud, almost on par with the fact that Raven hasn't pinned Punk, which is he hasn't hit the Raven effect DDT. In in promos, in the matches, that's been the story. And that's something I really liked, especially about the last tag match they had, was they built the whole story of Punk hits it on him, Raven can't hit it on Punk, but what's going to happen? One day Raven's going to hit it. And here... Raven just reverses a move, like I think an Irish whip, hits it with barely any like warning. Like He just raises his arm to the crowd immediately hits it. It isn't the finish. The crowd doesn't react. The audience, I mean, the announcers don't really play it up big. And I was just really disappointed, because so far this feud has had really good attention to detail, and they built it up and just gave it away for nothing. And that was such a weird... I, I didn't expect that to happen, and I was not enthused with it the other thing i didn't like was um the last minute or two of the match is basically punk and cabana double teaming bj and taking him out and you don't see what takes raven out of the match like raven i think gets pulled out at one point and colt's on the outside with him for a while the camera never cuts to them and raven's too slow to make the save and it just felt weird that like I felt like you needed some better, like, on-screen justification for why Raven was, like, completely out of the last couple minutes of the match. But we never get it. Um, Yeah, though, I I thought this was a good match. These Raven matches keep working. I think the crowd liked it. The crowd that could see it, maybe. But um, (laughs) uh, uh, also, another thing to note is Gabe does a little bit of foreshadowing for the second straight show. He says... Didn't Punk say something about his old man before he got off, cut off on the mic? Do or die, and they're actually you know teasing a promo Punk will cut on the next show, which will be one of the most remembered CM Punk promos pre WWE that he ever cut. And it's interesting that for two shows now, in, Gabe and Punk have been foreshadowing it. Like they're not—they're almost treating this promo like a match, like it's something to be teased and then built to
2: so yeah that, that's a cool that's a cool thing and then it obviously pays off so yeah it's good
1: so yeah yeah f- fun ecw-ish type match i thought it was one of the best looking Colt 45s i've ever seen hit mm-hmm. um at the after the match we uh punk beats down raven and bj with a chair and then he puts raven through a table by doing a top rope leg drop to the floor through a table the, announce- crazy spot.
2: the announcer's are like, "You went too far, and I'm like, that's even that's not even the craziest table spot we've seen so far tonight, but <laughs> hey.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, again, like, it's, it's crazy to see that Raven's basically playing the Tommy Dreamer role in this feud so far, where he's he loses the match, and he gets put through a table, he hits his finisher, still can't win, like, he's showing a lot of ass so far in this feud, taking a lot of abuse. Hmm. Um, Backstage is, is intermission, and Gary Michael Capetta is with Matt Stryker. Capetta put, puts over Stryker's recent wins and says, How you doing, bro? Or should I say, How you doing, brow? Because, yeah, <laughs> Matt Stryker has the unibrow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd, I'd say just...
2: Gary Michael Capetta, he has his charm, but I never thought he was very good in this ROH stuff. Uh, I don't know you what know. you what
1: you think. Um, He's it's weird because I, I actually agree. Like he's charming. It just feels like ring of is supposed to be this cutting edge promotion. And Gary, Michael Capetta feels like your grandfather or your uncle, like who's also there. And he's good at being Gary, Michael Capetta, but it seems like a bit of a, a, a slight mismatch. I would say. Yeah. Um, striker said he heard a couple people chant fear the brow tonight, and maybe it's the power of the brow helping him win, rack up all these wins Stryker says that recent wins against Tom Carter and Chance Beckett have been like winning in the playoffs. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> G- Gary and Stryker go over his next two Ring of Honor matches one against Tom Carter in a tap out match, which actually won't end up happening, and another against Chad Collier. Gary says, In that match, my money's on you, buddy.
2: Both of those matches don't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the record. Oh, yeah. Jeez. The so, promo yeah, the, the promo build up for Punk paid off. The match build up for Striker did not pay off twice in a row.
1: So they're really starting to build Match Striker up. Like he's getting these promos. I think he got a promo on the last intermission maybe. I'm not 100% sure, but you know, he's starting to get a little bit of promo time and he's getting these undercard wins. So the Striker train is starting to roll and we'll see how BJ Whitmer helps him derail it in some time. <laughs> uh spoilers <laughs> Gary throws to the second half of the show except Prince Nana walks in and interrupts Prince Nana is back he says he's back and he's going to start go back in the tag division with a partner although he doesn't do it tonight because we come back from inter- intermission and get Prince Nana taking on and, de- and defeating Diablo Santiago scored to the ring by his old tag partner Oman Tortuga Prince Nana wins in by pinfall in two minutes, 15 seconds after he hits his elevated DDT before the match, Prince Nana walks around the ring, tells the camera to focus on a fan who he calls quote "fat and disgusting unquote." That was maybe the most memorable point of this match. It was just- <laughs> I think
0: uh, I think Nana's wedgie he had by the end was probably the most memorable <laughs> oh, part. I have another uh, memorable part too.
1: Okay, Matt.
2: What's your memorable part? Well, first of all, I just want to say I was I was legitimately happy to see Prince Nana. He that guy's got spunk. Um, <laughs> but I, so here's the here are the things that I wrote. First thing I wrote was, well, this is surprising because I did not look at the back of the DVD box, so I did not know this was coming. Um, and Diablo actually has the offense for the first like minute or so. Then Nana suddenly takes takes over, and Gabe on commentary goes. People think it's a gimmick that he's a prince. In ROH, there's no gimmicks. And I just wrote... I ju- in response to that, I just wrote, Gabe. Like, Gabe, just, come on.
1: <laughs> I picture you drawing, like, the eye-rolling emoji on a piece of sheet paper. Like, Basically. Just-
2: <laughs> like, how, like, how does he say that with a straight face at this point? Like, is it supposed to be ironic? I don't know. But, um... So, butt splash. Implant DDT. Yeah, something the Implant DDT is cool. I was... I thought it was, um... Interesting that they decide him to bring him back as a wrestler, because at this point, they've moved so far past him, and obviously, I know that he became much more successful in ROH as a non-wrestler, so I was surprised that he ever really even had another run as a wrestler. Um, but hey, whatever. At the end, he sidewalk slams Oman Tortuga onto Diablo Santiago and hits a backsplash onto both of them. So he's a wrecking machine.
1: That was actually the most inter- like memorable thing that he did, and it was... the happened after the match yeah but i i would say like yeah this is the awkward teen years of prince nana's ring of honor career because you remember his early days when ring of honor was trying out a million things and you remember his days as a manager and you forget like i forgot too oh they just like brought him back in 2003 like it's it's weird it seems like there isn't a fit for him at this point as a wrestler i wonder if they
2: already knew that he was going to be a manager and like they were going to transition into it honestly i don't know I I mean, at this point,
1: it looked like they were trying to sell that he was going to go back in the tag division, so... Right.
0: Yeah, that never went anywhere, did it?
1: I don't think so, but then again, (laughs) I don't even remember him coming back. (laughs) Maybe I'm forgetting an incredible... The the tag titles are going to switch a lot in 2003. Maybe I'm forgetting, like, a Towel Boy Prince Nana 2003 comeback run or something. I I don't know, but... Joe, do you have any other possible thoughts about a two-minute Prince Nana squash?
0: You no, know, we've spoken
2: far more than I anticipated.
1: Okay. So yeah. Like there
2: Matt are no gimmick. At- there are no gimmicks in ROH. None.
1: <laughs> so yeah, as Matt said, after the match, Diablo and come Oman comes in to check on Diablo. Nana lays them both out. Uh next match. The SAT. Of Joel and Jose Maximo defeat Special K of Dixie and Mikey Whipwreck, scored to the ring by a lot of people, including Becky Bayless, in ten minutes thirty eight seconds. When both of the SET pinned Dixie after they hit a Doomsday Device DDT on Dixie, um, Matt. Before I give it to you, hmm. I'll just note. Doug Gentry really stressed during this match that this was not a scramble match. Like, he got mad when Paul Turner wasn't calling for tags. He said, this is not a scramble match. Matt, was this a scramble match?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, um, so, uh, okay, so let me think of something to say about this match. Well, first of all, it was very sloppy. Uh, I, I know this might be surprising to some people, but... There was some sloppiness in this match between the SAT and Mikey Whipwreck and Dixie. Um, So early on, Mikey badly botches a head scissors, um, but he recovers with a Rana. So wheelbarrow slammed by Joel into Jose's knees on Dixie. They do the Boston Crab Camel Clutch combo um, on both members of Special K. Jose does a running drop kick to Mikey's face. I'm just basically going to list moves because that's what it was. Where he runs (laughs) back and forth a few times, um, and Doug goes. Of um, that's more running than Rob Feinstein does at the gym, and then Gabe goes, that's more running than Joel has done in the ring in the past year. And I just wrote, "Geez, Gabe McMahon,"
1: um, like for some reason they really go after. Jo- well, I mean, I know why because, like, I mean, Christopher Daniels. We talked about after that match he and Morgan had against the SAT said that the SATs really needed to work on their cardio, and it seems like right around the time of that match, Gabe started making little like. Oh, you know, he's the fat one jokes, or he's the heavier one, or, or jokes like this. Like, it gave, he's getting his little yeah, jabs
2: I, in. Yeah, I don't like when he does that. Because first of all, who the hell are you, as I've said before? Second of all, just like, that's the stuff that like you want ROH to not be like, right? Where you're like, they're not so obsessed with like, or like start talking about guys' appearances and stuff. And, like, you know, kind of bullying them in public to be, like, to get in shape. You know, like, the r is supposed to be the anti-that at this point. But Gabe is very much like that. Um, So, Mikey does a pair of leg drops over the top rope. Um, Special K does a double gut buster. Um, Then the match calms down, and the crowd pushes Jose to hot tag Joel. Dixie goes to sunset, flip Joel to the outside, but Jose stops him, which allows Joel to hit a Maximo explosion which is an air raid crash to Dixie on the apron and the crowd went nuts for that. That's a kind of a crazy spot. Um, Special K attacked the SAT allowing Mikey to hit a flipping senton onto everyone on the floor. Um, this is the first match where Mikey didn't seem like the old man. Um, you know, it's not that it was great but he just he started to kind of fit in a little bit more and which is, makes sense because he's very young here and he's always sort of positioned as the wily veteran. Um, and so My- Mikey hits a double arm belly to belly on Jose for two. Uh, Jose hits a Tornado DDT on Mikey for two. Then Dixie comes in with no tag. And, and, and there's, so there's four power bombs, no release by Joel on Dixie. Mike hits a top rope Rana on Joel, followed by a whippersnapper. By the way, I, sh- I want to note this, because it's something that people have not talked about much. Isn't it weird that Mikey Whipwreck's finisher was the Stone Cold Stunner at the same time Stone Cold Steve Austin was doing it? Like, that's bold,
1: isn't it? It wasn't like, um, wasn't the Chartbuster by Disco Inferno Osol basically the stunner? Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, and the Ace Crusher from Johnny Ace. Like, well, the Ace Crusher was first, right? Yeah, yes. but you know, Johnny Ace. So, yeah, not really. It's it's uh, just, just it's, say,
0: it's m- sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, Mikey Whipwreck holds victory over Superstar Steve Austin, so I think he's earned the right to uh, to steal <laughs> his move.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's I'm not saying it's bad. It's just it's just weird to think like you know, like, you're just doing the top guys, like, the most famous wrestling move in wrestling history, probably, Either it's probably the Stone Cold Stunner, right? The one that, like, people like to do on each other more than any other move, and there's another guy's just like, yeah, I'm gonna do it, too. Um, that's gonna be my move, and I'm gonna call it something different. Um, but anyway, um, there's a Doomsday DDT on Dixie for the three by the SAT. Um, not terrible. There were some cool moves. The Heat was pretty good, um, but it was very, very sloppy. Uh, so that's uh, that's pretty much what I'll say about that match. It was a
1: scramble. Joe, I want your thoughts on this match, but I also want to know, um, before the match, Mikey Whipcrack grabs I think Mikey did, he grabs a box of Special K cereal from someone at uh, ringside, and at the start of this match, this is something that even the commentators acknowledged, the ring is covered with something. I'm going to assume it was Special K cereal, Live, can you give me, since you were there live, can you tell me what you thought of this match, but also what was covering the canvas of the ring?
0: I can't quite cover that. It looked kind of powdery, but I guess it could have been kind of crunched Special K. Cocaine! <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, if only these, these kids are so talented, if only they'd get their heads straight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I tend to forgive sloppiness in kind of a grudge match setting, because, you know, you don't want... You you would expect, you know, kind of tempers to flare and things like that, but I guess that's more of a a brawling style and not intricate spots they were trying to do and just messed up. So there were some cool moves, but uh, yeah, this was a scramble match, and uh, I thought the Doomsday DDT was a hell of a move. I don't know why they kind of kiboshed the Spanish Fly, because that's... uh, which is uh, the move of 2018 going by WrestleMania. And it's nice that, that that their move name has carried over to that. I don't know why they abandoned it, because it's usually the biggest pop they'd get. But, uh, you know, some good stuff. But you know, it was a SAT match.
1: Yeah, um, I am a little bit lower on this match than you guys. Not that you guys are raving about it. I thought this was a little worse than a normal scramble match. I just... I don't know. I, uh, Mikey Whiprick was fine, but... I wish some of the other Special K guys were in there instead. Uh, it just it, its not just was a little bit worse version of the scrambles I'm used to, while Doug Gentry kept telling me this was not a scramble match. Didn't feel like a grudge match at all. I also thought it was kind of, I mean, funny, it, not necessarily a laugh, right? But, like, Mikey Whipwreck is the guy who trained this SAT, so you think, hmm wonder what he's going to do in the ring with the SAT. And the very third first thing Mikey Whipperick does in the ring is a tilt-a-whirl-rana that he botches with one of the SAT. And I thought, ooh. But, um, yeah, just, it was just a, a, a slightly subpar scramble. I do think that maximal explosion on the apron, it it's always crazy to see a big apron spot, like before apron spots became the norm and the hot thing to the point where they happen frequently in WWE now. Um, there's another funny little bit on commentary where Doug Gentry says if special K cleaned up they'd be so much do so much better of a job and he says, "Look at the announcers." And there's been a couple jokes on the show about Doug Gentry cleaning up. So little line, maybe that was something recent going on in Doug's life, but there there's a couple jokes like that in during this show. Another weird commentary bit is Gabe and Doug don't recognize who ba- Becky Bayless is. They're like, "Uh, she's in Special Case Entourage," and they're, they go, "Who's that girl?" Like they point out that they don't know who she is, even though they called her out by name when she was part of Homicide's entourage during the Homicide's gang during the gr- during versus Steve Carino's group storyline. So, one of those weird moments where they are relaunching Becky Bayless and are now forgetting that they know who she is. So. Uh, not much else to this match. Uh, you guys still with me? I'm here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah good. I just um, so after the match, the Special K do a really shitty beatdown on the SAT. Carnage crew runs in. They attack Mikey. Gabe says this, is, this is to get revenge for Mikey cost- costing them a match at Epic Encounter. Mike is able to make a brief one-on-two comeback until Just Incredible runs in and attacks to an him to another big pop. Logan DeVito introduced Justin as the new mem- newest member of the Carnage Crew group. So that explains why he was wearing that controversial Jinx t-shirt. Um, cr- pretty weird to think that you always think of Carnage Crew as a tag team. But Gabe even reminds us they still have Masada. So at this point, the Carnage Crew is a four-man stable. Like It's pretty weird to think about at this point. But and, there's at least,
2: and there's at least one match where they all wrestle together.
1: Yeah. Uh Next we get before the next match, we get a graphic that just tells us that the field of honor tournament is coming soon. It reminded me of,
2: it reminded me of like a very old school like Oz is debuting like I, I I kind of liked it it was you don't see that much in modern wrestling
1: yeah I like that especially I like that they didn't explain it even I just yeah. like that they announced something and it's just like field of honor and you're like, what's that
2: gabo, just- gabo, gabo gabo <laughs>
1: Um, but next, we got something that's a little bit better than the Field of Honor turn. Just a, just a scooch better. And that would be the number one contender's trophy match. Paul London versus AJ Styles. Goes to a draw after a double pin in 24 minutes, 12 seconds. Now, I am going to gush over this match once again. But first, I want to go over a couple things. The first thing I want to go over is... The story of this match is, you would think, why did they do a double pin for a uh, number one contenders match? And I'll tell you why. I'll quote from The Observer. The original plan for this match was to put Paul London over and to build him up for a match with Ring of Honor champ Samoa Joe. And also end the show with London doing his spectacular shooting star on Styles after presumably a great long match. When Styles won the NWA title a few days earlier, which Ring of Honor wasn't aware of until hours before it happened, it forced a booking change because Styles, as NWA champion, couldn't job on an indie show. Since Styles also couldn't win because it was set up a match with Samoa Joe that Joe, the Ring of Honor champ, couldn't win, and they still wanted to build for Joe versus Paul London, Ring of Honor decided on a double-pin draw. The feeling was, because the bout was going to have a flat finish, they put the six-man tag in the main event slot. The bout ended up going 25 minutes, and apparently was an excellent match that stole the show. And the finish wasn't even flat. They were supposed to go even longer, but Styles ended up with a tooth loosened from a shot, and he got it back in place, but wanted to go home before it was knocked out. So, that's the first big story of the matches. It was, And that leads me to the other thing I want to mention first, which is... Let's just go over how cursed this feud has been. So let's go over the history of this feud. AJ Styles and Paul London, you know, were both feuding with Xavier at the end of 2002. They wrestle in a three-way with low Key at the first year anniversary show to get a shot against um, Xavier. Paul London wins. He loses to Xavier. At the end of that show in a segment, I think AJ Styles asked Paul London, you know, Let's form a tag team and go after the tag belts, because those are held at the, by the Prophecy at this time. It's a great, simple thing that makes complete sense. It's These two guys were after the Prophecy's world title. They both lost, but they can still get revenge if they team together as a tag team and get the tag belts. So they were supposed to win at, um, was it Expect the Unexpected, I believe? And except Paul London no-shows the show, well, not does not no-show, he has the sinus infection that is so severe he needs emergency surgery. And so instead, Ring of Honor books A Amazing Red, and they still go through with the tag title victory. So basically Red takes London's spot, AJ and Red win the tag titles from Xavier and Christopher Daniels. So then they worked up this storyline where um, Paul London is going to turn heel and they're going to do a match at the round robin. What, what the show that was originally round robin challenge before it was called that, where it was going to be Paul London finding a partner, a mystery partner, and taking on um, AJ and Red for the tag belts. Except AJ gets hurt on that night. They have to again change the card, make it into a three man round robin challenge. So then we get to tonight, and this happens. So this feud was just. almost every match that would happen in every step of the way was changed. So that's the first weird thing. Um, Before I've, do you guys have any thoughts first on the background of how weird this all is? Or am I the only one who thinks it's really weird how this has gone on?
2: Well, I, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. Like you're right about all that. It's amazing to me though, still how well this all came off in spite of that, which I guess is what we'll get to now.
1: Yeah, um, I thought this match was just great. I, I, um, I'll I'll just go a little bit in my thoughts right now. I thought uh, the first half of this match was like just a lot of back-and-forth trading of stuff, and they kept doing a lot of handshake spots, and there was building up some tension. And then the second half of the match is London working over AJ Styles' leg, but in really inventive ways, like... He does an axe kick to AJ's leg as it hangs over the apron. Or when he does a shooting star press, he doesn't try and hit AJ's full body. He just wants to hit the injured leg. And even a lot of the times, he does a couple submissions on it, but he does things with a real snap. It's mostly just him hitting the leg. And it all plays great into the finish where AJ hits a Styles Clash, but he lands on his knee naturally as you would with that move. He's too hurt to make a cover in time. And then later when he hits a German on Paul London, he can't bridge up because his leg hurts so much. He can only do a one leg bridge. So both their shoulders are down and that gets you the double pin finish. But really this was just, it was a great match. Ashley told a story in the second half, but lot had lots of good one upmanship. I thought the pacing was just right. You know, it didn't, it was, it wasn't like always breakneck every second, like craziness, but these two guys are just so good at what they do. And it had a little bit of everything, I thought. Um, like, Joe, what did you think live of seeing this match?
0: Uh, live at the time, I thought this one was one of the best live matches I had ever seen, personally. And 15 years later, and probably 100 wrestling shows since, it's still up there. It's so good. It, it literally, like, checks so many boxes in terms of storytelling and selling and having that play into the finish. And having, like, cool creative moves. And, you know, I think... You know, uh, London catches AJ's leg for a kick at one point, AJ tries an ends curie, but London just kind of spins and dragon screws the leg at the same time, which was awesome. I mean, the work was like, I mean, AJ just annihilates him with a discus clothesline at one point, and it was just, yeah, it was just so good, and it still holds up completely, and uh, it's a damn shame. I don't think that these two ever wrestle again in any form. I kind of don't think they did, which is just a shame. Because sh- this should have been, like, you know, something we saw ten incarnations of.
1: Matt, I had a feeling you liked this match, but how much did you like it?
2: Well, I, I mean, I loved it, but I, um, you know, it's it's interesting. For, for one thing, it's weird to think that for many years, there was a kind of a conventional wisdom about AJ in certain quarters that he was not a fully formed wrestler in the same way some of these other guys were you know in the sense that he maybe was a little bit too spotty that his selling wasn't that good it's so weird when you go back and watch this stuff and think that anyone ever thought that because obviously now aj is considered one of the greats but you know he was always one of the greats if based on the stuff that we've watched i don't, would you agree with that
1: yeah, and, uh, the, the thing that really gets to me is, like, people just always assume, like, AJ was just a flippy high flyer, and we've seen lots of those in, you know, groups like Special K, I thought, did you notice, like, I think Joe mentioned it a little bit, like, how hard AJ was hitting Paul London on some of this stuff, like, AJ Styles, not only was he, like, a, a more complete wrestler than people gave him credit for at the time, he was, like, a secretly, like, not quite low key, but he could he could wail on you even at this early age.
2: Yeah, in our yeah, age, I'll, she was always a devastating striker.
1: Yeah, um, like he's getting doing some like sweat flying like blows to the chest and stuff.
2: Yeah, and you know and it's great to see like a good match between two veterans who really know their stuff, but it's also like there's something about watching two precocious young guys with something to prove and a lot of just a lot of physical talent um to do, trying to do an epic match because they can do things that the veterans really can't do. Like they can combine some of the great like the ideas with the physicality that you just can't do when you're 40 years old even when you're AJ Styles. And I, uh, you know, so th- that's really exciting too. What I liked about this match so much was that it was different than any ROH match we've seen so far. The stalling at the beginning, like you said, they build the tension. They kept doing the handshake teases and all that stuff. You just never saw that in any ROH match. And the crowd was not getting restless with it at all. Cause they just were such in awe of these guys and the guys, you know, were just so good. You know, early in, on in the show, we would talk about you know some of the crappy guys and the ROH uh, undercards, and then you would get you know the Brian Danielson and low key matches where you're like, okay, these guys are on another level. Even as ROH as it has improved dramatically, you still have this very small core of guys that's just on this completely different plane of existence in terms of their talent, in terms of how snug what they do is, in terms of how smooth it is, how logical it is. And, you know, that short list, you know, AJ Styles, Paul London, Brian Danielson, uh, Samoa Joe will be on it pretty soon. Uh, Low-key is on it. Um, you know, I don't even know if Daniels is always on it. Um, but there's these certain guys where you just look at them. But, he, but you know, Daniels I'd include in there too. And there's these certain guys you just look in there like these guys are just on another level. And I've, I know you've mentioned it before, but Paul London is definitely on that level. And it's crazy to think that, you know, what could have been with him if he had come along a few years later and got into WWE or, you know, TNA, you know, at the same time that a lot of these other guys did, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very regretful what if situation because he was as good as anybody, um, I think.
1: Paul London breaks my heart you know like it's it's weird cuz he is getting lost to history I think a little bit because because guys like Joe and Punk kept their careers going and moved on to places of more prominence I think more people revisit their early ROH stuff but Paul London uh, he doesn't get revisited as much and even I one of my big revelations in rewatching what we've rewatched so far is how good Paul London was like he is better than I remembered and it, it's sad. It, it, it is sad that he is going to get lost, I think. I think he's in the process of getting lost to history.
2: Also, well, we're preserving it. Just just, just us. <laughs> we're, we're saving the day. But um, also, his run was just much shorter than, uh, than D- Danielson's on the Indies, even Keys. You know, he just pretty much it was September 2002 until this show is pretty much his great run. Uh, this is pretty much it as far as like, the big epic Paul London stuff. And then that's, yeah, that's, it, that's it forever, basically.
1: That's the other thing I, I, I wrote down. I, um, he's, he's getting screwed in our honor end-of-year awards due to timing because I know last year when we did our 2002 honors, I, I couldn't put him in the top three of wrestler of the year because he only started really going crazy and really getting a shot in around, like you said, September. But I think I gave him an honorable mention, pun intended. And then 2003, um, he's got one match left. He won't be on the next show and then he'll be on Death Before Dishonor, and that's his farewell match. And he won't be on the second half of 2003. And because of that, I probably won't be able to justify putting him on this year's end-of-the-year awards. Yet, if you took Paul London's September of 2002 up till now, that's less than a year, but just think of what he did. He did the ladder match with Michael Shane, the three matches with Brian Danielson, the two matches with Xavier, the... uh, Paul at the three-way with low-key and AJ Styles and now this match to me that is as good a run of matches as anyone in ring of ring of honor so far that is like on the level of the first six or seven months of low-key
2: yeah I'd say I'd say better because of the emotional aspect of a lot of those matches.
1: And because of the timing, like it just comes in this weird like middle of 2002 to middle of 2003, and so he, he he it's not easy to say oh well he had a great you know 2003 he had a great 2002 he had a great one year period in the middle.
2: Yeah, he's the wrestler of the half year uh, in ROH, yeah. that's for sure. Um, yeah, he's a, he's like a, he's like an early day Johnny Gargano, um, <laughs> but. Um- <laughs> and- I was gonna say just a couple of things about the match. I really liked how they went to the the leg stuff, you know, where AJ, you know, did his like jump over the guardrail, go for the kick over the guardrail, but London just catches it and just wails him against the guardrail. Um, I re- it was just very creative. Also, noticed that London cut his elbow on the guardrail, which is second show in a row that we have somebody getting a bad cut
1: from that. Um, we should have kept a we should have kept a, a running tally of all the new guardrail victims because it's probably going to. I know Joe gets to be a victim in the coming show, so Joe Gagney the. Um, Joe, we did never, you
0: ever? I, go- I could never. I could never afford front row. So okay. I would say from the dreaded oh, Thank rails. God. Got it. But um, uh,
1: Samoa, the, the non Gagney, the Samoan Joe is Sam- uh, Samoan going Joe. to be a victim in the coming shows. Yeah, I, I see.
2: So I, I, I like that. Um. um Gabe brags at one point, like he's too involved in the match to talk about how hot Laurie is. Like, thanks, Gabe. I'm I'm glad that you were able to point that out. Uh, True heroism. He just he just can't get through being seeing a woman on the screen without being gross. It's. It's it's <laughs> remarkable at this point. Um, but I love you know even London you know you said London was sort of the white meat baby face in the promo. He still does like some subtle heel stuff. He just like kicks at AJ's leg. He's just kind of a dick about it. And I really like that stuff. I love the mind games in the match. I love the different holds. And you know and oh, did and the, the AJ clothesline, the roundhouse clothesline. That's like an all-time ROH spot. They do like kind of like the holding and hitting like the fry Takiyama match and then like they stop it just turns, spins around, hits a roundhouse clothesline, and London goes inside out. I've never seen a reaction to the clothesline like that. That—that's the spot of the match, I think.
1: Um, also, going to something you said about the start of the match. So, to kind of elaborate on the start of the match. The start of the match is, like, it's the middle of the match where the leg starts to come into play. Before that, it's kind of just a lot of one-upmanship, and they'll they'll do a couple moves, a little sequence, and then, you know, Paul London will ask for a handshake. And I never, I didn't know if that was supposed to be Paul London being a jerk, or Paul London just being intense, but I thought it was interesting where AJ at one point refuses a handshake, and he actually gets some boos. Like, I, I don't know if that was the intention, but he's like the first one to not... Ask for a handshake. I, I, I didn't know exactly what they were going, especially like even at the start of this match before it all starts. Um, Paul London's like slapping hands at ringside. He's just being a total baby face. I so took that it, was the. Oh, sorry, go on.
2: I took it as mind games, like they were just like like you know I got this you know like I, I didn't think it was like particularly heelish or not heelish. I saw saw saw, well, saw it just sort of as we're playing a game of chess here and trying to psych each other out.
1: And I, I guess one other thing I want to mention is I don't know if we have any professional wrestlers that listen to our show, active pro wrestlers, but I'll say this. There's a great thing to learn in this match where there are so many wrestling matches, what, what the wrestlers do, and, and it's a one way of doing it, is you start working on someone's limb if you want to work on a limb in the match, and you work on it the entire match. And the problem with that is sometimes is you have big moves you want to do that involve that limb, and you want to do those big moves at the end. And now you either have to kind of ignore the selling or not do them. The thing I like about this match is they saved all the limb work for the second half of the match. and it was just as effective. So I would suggest to some wrestlers, like, steal a page from this match and, you know, do the moves that involve that limb in the first half. And then do the limb story if you want to do, like, a story with an injured leg. You know, you don't have to do it the whole match if you do it well.
2: And this like is something this that cool. even this is something that I've even seen AJ, you know, do like the way you're describing here, where he still like du- you know is selling the whole match and then goes back to just using his leg. So he knows how to do it, but I guess a lot of wrestlers just decide, oh, I don't need to worry about that. No one cares, but we do care. I mean,
1: I mean there is a moment like uh, where he does the does like the springboard off the ropes into the reverse DDT. And I saw someone online in a review complain that, he, you know, he didn't sell his leg weight, but I think for the most part, the selling of this match is good. And again, it's, I think it's easier to tell like a limb story and be consistent when you're not doing it for 25 minutes. If you only have to do it for 12 minutes, you're making it much easier to be consistent for yourself. And I, I think that's just a great lesson to learn. And this match does not suffer at all. If anything, it's kind of cool. Uh, the match changes like that halfway through.
2: Yes, and another cool oh. another cool moment, by the way, that you mentioned to me when we were talking about it was, they were on the top rope, like struggling to hit a big top rope move, and um, which I um, you know which has sort of become a calling card of Big Paul London matches, like the struggle on the top rope. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed that, but then and the guy from the they're hitting each other really hard with strikes, and a guy in the crowd yells, um, "Easy! Wrestling's supposed to be fake." yeah and and everyone and and, like it's just just very noticeable and just a really cool testament to the match
1: i feel like that's that must be a fan from 2018 that's time traveled back in time because like most of the fans in, in that era would like be like loving unprotected chair shots or something so like the idea of the woke i'm concerned for the wrestlers health fan in 2003 being like whoa guys like Lighten up on those moves. I, I, it was just a surprise to me. Like, hey, calm down. The, even earlier, um, there's a point in the match where Game On commentary says, there's no sports entertainment in any of those headbutts. Like, they were really trying to sell the stiffness of this match. But, yeah, this is a great match. I don't know where I'd rank it. I'm going to save the rankings for the end of the year episode. But to put over Paul onto one more time, Four of my five favorite Ring of Honor matches in 2003 so far have Paul London in them. Like that's amazing.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other one being Joe and Homicide.
1: Yeah, from Do or Die. Yeah, I, I think I think Paul London. I, I think the, the two matches he had on the first Grand Anniversary Show, the obviously the Brian Danielson one, and this one. I think those are all top five. And hell of a hell of a half year. Like just amazing. And I'm glad he's leaving that because I, I get sad now watching how good these matches are. I get sad. Um, so now that I'm in a mel- melancholy mood, <laughs> we will move on to um, after the match, we get the double pin. The crowd boos at the finish, but then it turns into loud five-more-minute chants, and London and AJ eventually shake hands to cheers. A fan screams at the f- match it was worth the price of admission all on its own, and Gabe agrees on commentary. Styles and London take turns raising each other's hands and the crowd gives them a standing ovation. I thought it's a real testament that the crowd didn't turn on this. Like, it shows how good the match was that even though they did get a non-finish, and, you know, the thing, you know, from Dave's report, Ring of Honor was scared that this match finish was going to get shit on. Match is so good. Crowd really doesn't care that much when they don't get more, a finish. And also, like, it's crazy to think this match was cut short. Like, apparently, AJ and them were supposed to go longer, but because he had a knocked tooth, he went home early. Like, yeah, I wonder what else they would have done. Yeah, it, it's, it's just crazy.
2: I feel like, just so, aesthetically, the match was good how it was. Yeah, yeah like, it didn't need anything it, else.
1: Yeah, it didn't feel, watch it, like they cut something out. Like, sometimes you can tell when a match has cut something out. Like, it feels like, ooh, there's something missing here. I didn't get that feeling at all watching this match. No. So, next we're going to get Joe, we've overwhelmed you with our gushing over this match, we've had you be quiet for a while, but we're going to need your live correspondent hot on the scene take, because there's something that happened on the show that did not make the DVD, but you were there, so... We're going to get into the story of the main event, which was a losing faction must disband match between the prophecy of Christopher Daniels, Danny Moth, and Donovan Morgan with Allison Danger. And they end up defeating and disbanding the group of C.W. Anderson, Michael Shane, and Samoa Joe in 20 minutes, 49 seconds, when Moth pinned Samoa Joe after a jack when he used a jackknife cradle. Now, originally Steve Carino, the leader of the group was supposed to be in Michael Shane's spot. He was not. I will get into why he why he really wasn't, but apparently on the show, they had low key do an angle to explain this for the live crowd in character. It is not on the DVD. L- Joe, can you explain what this was?
0: All right, so in the very first match they made a mention that in the main event, you know, the losing groups, you know, Ring of Honor can't stand these factions fighting. So the losing group has to break up which was a big surprise to me at the time because live there was an angle where the group of uh samoa joe cw anderson and michael shane came out and they called out loki who was scheduled to make an appearance of some sort loki comes out they make a pitch why don't you join the group and the prophecy comes out and says no if you join them you'll never get a shot at the title join us loki kind of goes you know he says like he talks about the uh what the title means to him in a funny moment he mistakenly says he fought for 60 seconds to win that title and kind of gets this look on his face like ah shit i messed that up uh and basically what he does he kind of goads both groups into um whoever loses has to disband which was quite a shock to watch as it uh as it unfolded on the dvd because they just cut a complete segment completely out of the the show and then Loki took off and we never saw him again i guess i don't know he went to beat the traffic or something <laughs> so yeah that was it was just odd because you know it was a long segment and this this was not a terribly long show i think with the bonus matches it went like two hours 50 minutes i don't know if it was really cut for time i think you could have you know just kind of edited off some pieces so i don't know maybe they just felt it didn't work or i don't know why it was left off but it was very peculiar to watch in retrospect
1: on the commentary, it's almost like Gabe's making up the stipulations of this match in his head on the fly, because at first, in the early parts of this match, he's like, uh, you, you these guy, whoever was on the losing team might not get bookings again, and then later on, he's basically like, this is basically loser leaves town, and he says that twice, and it's almost as if in the middle of the match, I don't think this is really what happened, but it comes off as, in the middle of an... I'm going to say, not that great match. Gabe decides he's not going to book some guys anymore and just makes up his mind that, well, oh, this is lose leave town. Like, this is it. Yeah,
2: and I also could, yeah, because that, that makes sense because as I was watching it, I was like, this is like the end of this supposedly big feud and there, they don't do any promos about it. I thought that was really weird, especially considering that Christopher Daniels always gets a big promo at the beginning end end of all these DVDs. And I was like, that's crazy that they don't have a promo about this big angle blow-off. Um, but I guess... You know, knowing everything that happened and how it went down, it makes a little more sense.
1: So I've done a lot of research on this. So I will give two sides of the story. The one side I can't give is the side of the person who accused Steve Credo of what's I'm about to describe. So when I describe this stuff, uh, let's just, in the sake of fairness, realize, you know, Everyone's got their own sides to stories. There's two sides to every story, sometimes more than two sides, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just giving these people's in, in their version of events. I'm not saying anything's for sure. The truth, but this is what Dave Meltzer reported at the time of the show. Dave writes the second problem with the, with the match, I skipped whatever the first was, was that Steve Carino no-showed. He never directly called the promotion, but he did send word through a third party at 10.30 p.m. the night before the show. Booker Gave the policy he was able to get Michael Shane replacement. Going on the assumption that Carino isn't coming back, and Dave writes in brackets, and in wrestling, that means eventually he will, they had low-key come out. Joe asked him to join the group, and Daniels told him that that would be dumb because if he joined with Joe, he couldn't get a Ring of Honor title match. Lowkey then challenged both teams to agree to a bout where the losing team had to disband. Math pinned Joe with the idea that it sets up Math with up for a title match on the 628 show in Philly. Word was the six man couldn't follow Styles in London, and the finish didn't get over as well as noted. So at the time, it was just Corino no showed. So. There, Steve Carino was one of the most prolific shoot interview guys in wrestling. He was like just on behind the Sandman and New Jack and Raven tier in terms of guys who produced a lot of shoots. His shoots I found to be pretty entertaining. So in a later 2003 Ring of Honor shoot interview, Carino tells his side of the story. And it's about for people who want to go out and find a copy of it if you want to hear Steve actually tell this, it's like the first 20 or 30 minutes of the, you know, it's pretty well told, but I'll try and give like the crib notes. This is Steve Crino's reason why he did not make the show. Um, on June 1st was on a plane flying back to his home state of Pennsylvania after a zero one tour. And then the plane lands in Detroit unexpectedly with the announcement that customs needs to handle something. They call two people off the plane. One of them's Creole. They tell the other guy he can go back on the plane. Creo's like, uh oh. And they tell Steve Carino that um, there's an, a warrant out on his arrest. There's a warrant out because he has forged a check worth $2,100 and there are 25 counts of credit card fraud. Um, Carino has no idea what's going on here. He, he doesn't n- have no idea this was out. He is put in, and he's held and detained, put into prison. On the 5th, he's moved to Wayne County Prison and shackled on a bus on the way there, put into prison in Kentucky, and for 15 days, Creel just keeps getting moved from prison to prison every few days. He is not allowed to make a phone call. He says his family eventually made calls and figured out what had happened to him, but he wasn't able to call the outside world. He um, says that's just the way the prison, he discovered that's the way the prison system worked, which is... Sometimes you just get lost in the prison system. He said he ran to a guy in the prison that told him he had been in for bouncing a hundred dollar check for one month and they hadn't yet like processed him. And Crino says he lost 15 pounds because the food was terrible. He says he did nothing but play solitaire and read a lot of books. They wouldn't even let him have a pencil because they were afraid he'd stab his jugular um he he says he felt like he was starting to go insane the last day. He felt like he was caught between heaven and hell because he never knew when he was going to get out. So, I mean, he it, the way Creo tells it, this was a very harrowing experience for him. And it turns out it was an ex-girlfriend Steve says, and they realized once they finally brought like these charges after the 15 days to court, they realized very quickly they were probably suspicious when her claims of um, fraud went to 2001, and he said quickly, they they said at first they misread and thought it was 2002, but at the court, when they realized her fraud charges were related to things in 2001, he said you could see their faces change quickly because all the prosecutors realized, like, who would wait two years to file a fraud charge? Turned out that a lot of the fraud things were, like, in her name. Like, there was a $500 charge on a credit card to repair a car, but it was her car, And the the cherry on top was Carino says that um, before this ever happened, this ex-girlfriend sent him emails saying that, like, I want some money from you. And if you don't, I can make your life very difficult. And Carino says he saved the emails and printed them out and gave them to the court. So basically Carino at this point, like the Dave Meltzer report said someone got word to them the night before. Crino didn't was, I don't think was able to talk to anyone for these 15 days at the point of this show, the day of the show, he had been jailed for two weeks. And I think he said something like guillotine Legrand guessed his email address and started contacting people. And yeah. And finally, Crino closes by saying when they ask him, is there anything else he wants to say about the experience? Steve says he didn't get butt raped and he didn't butt rape anybody. So that was something that Steve wanted to make clear. And that's the story of why Steve Crino could not be at the show. He was in jail, like for t- he had been in two weeks' prison at this point.
2: I mean, so, I mean, if that's all true as it says, you know, I feel really bad for him.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he claims he was going to sue the woman, the Wayne County Prison, Fox Twenty Nine for, and the Pottstown Mercury paper for printing um, unflattering coverage of him. I, I don't know if any of that came to fruition, but I do know that the charges were dropped, so whatever it was, the case did not stand up. So with all that being said, uh, Joe, what did this? <laughs> what you think of this wrestling match after, <laughs> we, after we just talked about a guy going to prison for two weeks?
0: Uh they just announced he wouldn't be there that night. They didn't say he was rotting in jail
1: yeah they, well, well they they didn't
2: they didn't
0: know right they didn't yeah. Know, yeah yeah we we weren't filled in uh the match itself got exciting near the end, but for a while, it was just kind of just guys going back and forth, and they finally kind of isolated Dan Moff, but it you know it's kind of weird to get sympathy on a guy who just turned his back on his tag team partner, his nickname's <sighs> the assassin. Uh, yeah I had a real hard time following the last match I, I, yeah, I did like the ending I see why they, they did what they did it, it kind of made sense to give Moff kind of a big win coming off of his turn but um, yeah I mean just jump right to the last couple minutes that's really all that's worth saying IMO
2: yeah,
1: um, Matt, what did you think?
2: Yeah, well, the finish was interesting because not only did it set up the Moth match, but also it set up the storyline that they've been going with it, where the joke can get pinned by quick pins. And they've been saying that, and it happened, and it happens again over the next uh, year plus. So I kind of like that they you know, really are working at that and sticking to it. But yeah, the match was, had no intensity, it really had no heat. Um, It was just like two heels, two heel groups fighting each other, which really very rarely works, even in ROH. And uh, yeah, it was weird. It was just like, I mean, I understand now, you know, why the mask didn't turn out that great, but it really didn't. It was just such, it was just so just meandering guys going back and forth, no sense of direction, no sense of storyline. Um, Daniel's got a hot tag late, and the crowd was excited for that. And you know he kind of saved the match a little bit, so it wasn't terrible. Um, but you have Donovan Morgan in there who doesn't really have charisma. Um, Michael Shane has kind of lost whatever charisma he had shown the year before. He'd pretty much given up, and obviously ROH gave gave up on him. This is this is his last match in ROH, right? Uh, uh, he, uh, Michael,
0: not- yeah. C. W. Anderson's last. Uh, Michael Shane has one more War of the wire. Way.
2: Yeah, or the wire. Okay, yeah. so so like months and months later.
1: Yeah, so Morgan, this is yeah. I forgot to mention this is Morgan and, and uh, CW's last match. Um, Shane's second last match. So yeah, that's that's telling in itself. Yeah. So I mean, you know,
2: a main event with a bunch of guys that the promotion has given up on, the crowd's given up on them. You still have Joe in there. You still have Mav. You still have Daniels, and not surprisingly, they are the highlights of the match, um, but not enough to really save it. Um, Joe does the ole ole kick, and the crowd doesn't really know that they're supposed to sing yet. But the kick is good. Um, you know, Joe does look good. He does like you know suplexes. They do a good like kind of strike fest right before Mav cradles him. Um, but you know, really, none of the action is noteworthy at all. Um, I. I uh, it's not terrible because the guys are competent, but it's it's definitely one of the worst main events they've had.
1: Yeah, what what struck me about this match was, uh, you know, I always t- I was talking about the Raven matching full of bells and whistles. This is a match that could have used one bell, yeah. one whistle, anything like e- a literal
2: whistle would have been entertaining. Just throw Bill Alfonso <laughs> out there it would have been yeah, would the have the just co- saved the match.
1: Somebody. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, like. I know from just the background I just listed off, we know this originally wasn't supposed to be the feud ending match, but the day of the show, they knew it was, and even if it wasn't you know, supposed to be the main event, it wasn't supposed to be a feud ender, it, it all turned out to be, and you think of like a guy like Christopher Daniels, who, who's, I think, a very smart guy in terms of plotting stuff, Like this felt like it was all called in the ring. It felt like there was nothing. No, there was no, as you said, no extra intensity. There was no, like, if there was ever a time to overbook a match and have run-ins or like, out, it, like foreign objects or anything at all. But it just felt like six guys feeling time. It felt like a mid card match, except it wouldn't even have been a great mid card match. Like, and I was, I was shocked at how little effort they put in to make this feel special. Um, I think maybe the most telling thing is this is something, this is a line Doug Gentry says on commentary about this match. At some point in the match, as things pick up, Doug Gentry says, this match has finally broken down to where we (laughs) thought it would be. I'll note, he says this 16 minutes into a 20 minute match. He's basically saying this match is finally getting good. When it's almost over, and I don't think he's wrong, like, it picks up 16 minutes into a 20-minute match.
2: And And, and I will say also, I mean, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but in the promo at the end of the show, Daniels basically references that the match wasn't good, like, which I'll get to, but...
1: Yeah. And also during this match, they almost do like, remember Matt, when we watched the first year anniversary show and we laughed because the first 20 minutes of that match, Doug and Gabe did everything they could to not talk about the match and just thank everybody.
2: Oh yeah. That was the worst Um, main event. But yes, go on.
1: But remember, during this match, there's a point where you can tell they're so bored by it, they just start talking about what were the good matches on the show we just saw. (laughs) Yeah, They're like, oh, what about that CM Punk match? What about that great AJ Styles match and Paul London match we just saw? Like, they just start talking about other matches (laughs) because there's nothing to talk about. And, um, yeah, it's just, I I thought... I thought Dan Moff was a standout, but that's not saying much. I felt like you could have used more um Samoa Joe and Christopher Daniels in this match because you know they're the by far the two biggest stars in this match and so I would have leaned on them a bit more, got me a bit more of them.
2: A lot of Donna, uh, a lot of Donovan, a lot of Donovan Morgan here. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like um it was also interesting that Gabe tried to explain Steve Carino's disappearance by saying that he's heard that Steve is afraid of Homicide street crew. So, again, <laughs> it, it shows you that, you know, they had really had given up on this feud. Like, they weren't even trying to say, maybe one day Steve will come back to the feud with Daniels. They're putting all the heat on the Homicide feud, which they will pay off. But uh, this is just a great example of what what a... Bad feud at every turn. The feud ends with one of the leaders of the two stables not even showing up for the final match. Steve Carino and Daniels never have a match against each other. Um, going back to what you said about Daniels' promo leader, not only does he bury the match, he buries the feud, basically. Like he's it, it, This is just, I, even if Carino showed up, this wasn't a good feud. But man, oh man, did it turn out to be the dirt worst <laughs> just
2: yeah it's one definitely one of the early like um black marks on the uh gabe sapolsky's booking record hey it happens but it was certainly was bad it was bad <laughs> i do uh, think that oh sorry go i was on gonna too. say
0: to be fair carino may have run into some homicides gang during his uh time <laughs> in jail so <laughs> that could have expanded that out
2: the kentucky but, contingent
1: <laughs> <laughs> um I but I, I think Gabe also kind of learns some of his lesson because I don't think he tries to book guy as many guys that like have full-time Japan jobs in big meaningful feuds after this. Like if you look how he books Steve Carino He's very much a special attraction after this. Like, he'll come in when he has a free spot, but we're not going to put him into anything major or long-term. And looking back, one of Gabe's biggest mistakes was building so much around Steve Carino when he had the Zero-One job. Like, mm-hmm. you started the Homicide feud, you started a whole stable for him, you started the feud with the Prophecy. Even at the start, you know, Carino said one of the reasons he had to give up the announcing job other than him not liking Donnie B was... You know, the zero one one job. And they gave him all these hats to wear when he was one of the guys with the toughest schedules. So, just a not a great move by Gabe. But, you know, they pay their price for it and they move on. Um, after the match, backstage, we get that pr- promo that Matt was talking about. Christopher Daniels is cutting a promo with the rest of the Prophecy He says that after all that build-up, all the promises of a war, the group couldn't even hold their end up. And I wrote, getting meta here. Uh, Daniels tells Dan Moff he hit a home run tonight, and that while Daniels is in the Ring of Honor World title hunt himself, Moff deserves a shot too, and has every right to hold the belt for himself. Daniels says if for some reason Joe escapes Moff with the title, Daniels will be waiting in the wings for him. Which I felt was like a little bit... I don't like that because it almost kind of tips the hat that MOP's going to lose, not that people thought he was going to win, but he's basically saying, well, if you lose, I'll face him next. Well, that lays out the booking plan, basically. Um, The prophecy all high-five and leave to party, but Raven catches Daniels and wants to talk to him for a minute. Raven pulls him aside and tells Daniels that he's a big fan of him and needs to ask him a favor. He says he needs someone as manipulative and diabolic as he is to team with him against Punk and Cabana on the next show. Daniel says this is an intriguing thought, and he's a big fan of Raven's work as well. Raven just says, like, let's not make this into some mutual blowjob society. Are you in? Are you out? Daniel says he's in. So, two birds with one stone here. We get a little celebration and a, build up a couple matches for the next show. Matt, like, did you have any thoughts on this promo?
2: No, I mean, definitely the most noteworthy thing was how much he buried the match. You know, that you couldn't live up to the hype, couldn't hold up your end of the bargain. I, you know, I mean, you don't see that too often in ROH where they just bury their own shit, but I guess it was no denying that they had to acknowledge that they knew they messed up with this feud. So, but I did like, you know, I like the, the whole, like, you know, Raven just, like, lurking, be like, come over here, man, <laughs> and setting up that match. I look forward to that match. Um... But yeah, I mean, Daniels always cuts a good promo. Um, and I think this was pretty good.
0: Joe, you have any thoughts? I liked uh, what well, I thought what a nice man Daniels is telling Moff, He, you did a good job. You deserve an opportunity. I'm like, what a, what a good management style there. I appreciate that. Yeah,
2: Daniels really like you know, some shows he's really extra heelish and then other shows it's like, Hey, you know what, Daniels is a, is quite reasonable. It's it's interesting how they just, it's interesting how they just they, they can't really commit with some of these guys to what they are.
1: Yeah, this, this is the first. T- this is not the first time we've seen like Daniels actually be kind of wholesome and and like the voice of reason or the uplifting guy for the guy who's supposed to be the scary cult leader. Like this would be like I don't know if David Koresh was like you know what you need you need a hug like.
2: Well, I'm sure. I'm so, listen, I'm, listen. Do
1: you really think he didn't do that? Well, he gave a certain kind of hug, but that was one of the bad things he did. Right. I think, exactly. But. Exactly. <laughs> Hugs can be insidious, Trevor.
2: Um, no, but I think probably what it is is that this is just probably who Christopher Daniels is in real life. I think it is. And that's just, you know, it bleeds into his character sometimes.
1: Like, I've heard enough shoot interviews where younger wrestlers couldn't rave enough about, like, the influence Daniels had on him and, you know, the nice favors he did for them. So I think, yeah, I think he's almost like a Brian Danielson type where his natural, like, kindness shows through even when he. It isn't a character that he probably should be hiding it, but it just can't help but be supportive.
0: Um, I also have to say, I don't really think, um, you know, after seeing that <laughs> blood feud uh, or blood, uh, all the blood spilled in that, Daniels would be like, yeah, I got me in on this. Like, I, why would he give a shit like what Raven's doing? I don't know if I really bought that, but maybe he was just a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> he
2: did, say he, he did was- say he was a big fan.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, it did feel, I have to admit, it did feel a bit, like, kind of a cool moment that I didn't think I'd like as much. Like, it is kind of cool to see these worlds colliding of Christopher Daniels and Raven and them giving each other props. Like, it it is this kind of cool ECW meets modern indie wrestling moment, and I'm sure they had crossed paths somewhere before, probably, but I I like the idea that, that, you know, they were like, game recognizes game. You're cool. No, you're cool. Let's team. So... We just have a couple sec- segments left. Uh, elsewhere, Samoa Joe is backstage with another one of his extreme close-up interviews where we see every pore in his nose. Um, Joe says he made the bet, and now he has to pay the price regarding losing the main event. He says now the prophecy thinks he doesn't have backup. He the backup he needs anymore. Joe reminds us that he jacked Moff's jaw and hypes their match on the next show, saying Daniels will come later. Joe says, "Quote: You've rung the bell. You have been heard, and now you will be silenced." Unquote. Do you notice that?
2: Goes, do you notice that Joe's voice in WWE is totally different than the one he
1: always has used before? Like he's a lot screamier in WWE.
2: Yeah, he sounds like he's like he just sounds like a different person. I think.
1: Y- yeah, like like Joe here, you can see him on these recent shows. He's shaping like the image he wants to give his world champion that very calm but intense. Like I'm the champion. I'm gonna kill you you know like you think you have me but you don't look I have the title I am Samoa Joe I am pro wrestling and yeah when you he's cutting great promos now in WWE but they're a lot more like screamy like Roman Reigns Brock Lesnar's gonna shit you out like yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah it, it's a different it, it, it's a completely different change but still Samoa Joe um yeah, you you can see, like, this. Joe's one of those guys where you can see the pieces coming together. Some of the moves he's adding and some of these promos. He's getting, like, 75% to where he's going to end up being. Um, oh, one thing I want to mention that reminded me, Tim, is math promo. The start of the main event, Dan Moff's head... Has so much tape on his jaw and head to sell that the, the injured jaw angle, and he tears it all off within like the first minute. But he has so much tape on his head in the first minute. It looks like those old Laurel and Hardy posters where like one of them has a toothache and they have like the <laughs> ribbon wrapped around their entire head. Like it's it's an insane amount of tape to sell a jaw injury <laughs> that almost immediately all gets torn off. Right. Um, but we end the show with something building up for the next show as well. Somewhere else in the building, Special K, for the second straight show, is trying to get the tech guy to cut the lights so they can rave. He refuses until Slugger tells him to cut out the lights. Special K starts getting down, and they tell Slugger to watch the door for them, but they're attacked by the Carnage crew, including Justin Credible. Loke says that there's only one bastard so miserable that he can hang with the crew, and that's Credible. DeVito says they're going to kick even more ass... And Credible says he suffered through two years of being held back and then the three walk away. And that's how we end the show, with the Carnage Crew.
2: The Carnage Crew, main eventers, they're a big deal.
1: <laughs> so that was the show. Um, Joe, what did you think? Like, did it, How did you think of it at the time? And what did you think of it revisiting it with 15 years of hindsight?
0: All right, I just realized I forgot a story from the main event. Okay, uh, go ahead. Because uh, you know, early on, Michael Shane like kind of tags in like he wants to get in and he goes like, whoa, 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 whoa to Samoa Joe. And someone in the crowd really starts getting on his case. He starts going, whoa, 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 like anytime he does something. And this greatly upset some other fan because he screams, shut up, redneck to the first guy. And the second guy goes, you shut up, geek. And I'm like, oh, redneck versus geek will be the uh, post-show main event. Uh, that, I always remember that. That always makes me laugh. So that did not really come across on the uh, live day, but I had to get that out.
2: That's a good story in the sense that it just started with a guy going whoa 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 whoa
1: whoa! <laughs> it I, I love that the call out for that was redneck like you know rednecks <laughs> and their love of mimicry like <laughs> god damn it oh
0: yes uh, as for the show itself um I, it I mean it did have it had the great wrestling match it had the great surprise and just incredible it did have angle advancement of a of a sort in the main event but that's really more of a course correction where you're just taking something that's not working and kind of doing away with it i can't i mean there wasn't a lot of great wrestling but pretty much everything was entertaining and Matt's kind of comparison to like a really great episode of Raw kind of really seemed to hold up with this episode. Kind of all the stuff happening and like comings and goings, and it was a really quick, quick, uh, quick watch. Not, not the greatest show, but it's certainly an entertaining one. I thought.
2: I think it just speaks to how good ROH was at this point. You know, not everything worked. There wasn't so much that was particularly great, although there was one thing. But just things are working. Like the vibe is working. The pacing is working. You know the 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 characters are over, and so the show is just good. Like even when it's not great, it's
1: just it's consistently good. Yeah, um, I would say this was a step down from a lot of the two thousand three shows, but still enjoyable. And obviously, it had the one great match but it speaks to the, how much depth Ring of Honor built up in one year where like, a few things went wrong in the show, like the striker match you know, kind of underperformed. The main event had its big change. You know. The semi-main event had to have a double pin. And like, there's enough talent and enough depth that things can go wrong and they can still pull out a good show. Where I think if the first few shows something had happened to like Danielson or Loki, like, the show would have just cratered. But now they can take a hit and still put on a good show so i thought that was a a big difference um i want to thank joe again for coming on and explaining you know whoa 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 to us i I think i thought i thought the most important thing was going to be you explain the low key thing and your live thoughts but turns out whoa 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 is the thing that's (laughs) going to stick with me for for the most from this one um i'm sure we'll have you on one day again do you have anything else you want to plug uh, other than the shows i plugged at the top of the show
0: uh yeah, you did a fine job at the start. Twitter is uh Joe Gagne G A G N E. Um, I'm ten followers away from 1500, and that was my one of my <laughs> New Year's resolutions this year. Surely the stupidest one, but uh, if you could help out, I'd appreciate that. I do I do good good tweets, not not as good as Trevor. Matt doesn't really tweet anymore, but uh,
2: mostly retweets about politics.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: um, hardcore Sinclair. Uh huh. <laughs> <it's not good. laughs> He's not even selling that joke at all. Matt, do you want to bookend
1: right. the show with something? Like your more thoughts on Sinclair and the socio political world that six climate that the US is facing right now? Oi. I mean <laughs> Uh no. You know what? No.
0: <laughs> it's just not um, a good idea. For the best. Yeah. We'll see what,
1: what condition the world is in when we return with our next episode, which will be where we cover wrestle rave.
2: I can't wait Until to see we... you. I can't wait to see you as the titular line on that show. It's, <coughs> yeah. Guys, this is this this show has been such a wrestle rave. This is the biggest <laughs> wrestle rave I've ever seen.
1: What if Jimmy Rave just shows up and they're like, Wrestle, Rave? <laughs> oh, that, that counts. That counts. <laughs> um, yeah, and we'll on that show we'll have Homicide versus uh, Trent Acid in a fight without honor. We'll have the Daniels and Raven versus Punk and Cabana match, and we'll have a wrestling rave. So that should be a episode of the podcast. Uh, tune, tune in next time, and thank everybody for listening this time. Thank you, and good night.